creative company is so delicious, and the creative process is one of my favorite subjects. How humans can create something out of nothing is wildly exciting to me. And one of the best ways I love to spend my time is writing and recording my songs. Grady Trushlet is a recording engineer. He started the YouTube channel Twin Creek Audio. When I was looking through YouTube channels trying to find ways to hook up my analog gear with my computer gear and working with my DAW, his channel really stood out to me and he was playing with some really fun toys and some of the ones I had owned previously, so it was really fun to hook up with him. Grady has recorded tons of bands and he's done a lot of live sound too, so he's got a lot of experience and you can hire him as a consultant to help you with your setup. Hello! Hello, how are you? Hi, Grady. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Wow. Hey, thanks for jumping on this thing. Oh, you're welcome. Glad to be here. Look at that cool console you got behind you. What's going on back there? Uh, that's a Soundcraft Sapphire. I think it was made around 1992. I bought it out of climate-controlled storage in Houston about, it was in 2018. So I've had it for about five years here in the studio. Wow. Uh, it's taken a lot of work. It was really, this is upstairs. The yeah. studio is upstairs. So this is uh, about 450 pounds. Whoa. And it, had, it had to come up the stairs. I, I don't know. I can't get it on the video, but there's a railing. One of my videos, there's some, some shots of this. We had to tear down the railings at the top of the stairs in order to turn the console to get it in the door. Oh, my God. That was a pretty major undertaking. And how do you control the heat up there when you said it was like 106 there last week outside? Oh, I, have, I have air conditioning in here. I have a, I guess, like the equivalent of a two-ton AC unit, but it, they don't rate them that way anymore. It's a split unit. Hmm. But I put a unit up here since it's upstairs, so you've also got heat buildup from the, the downstairs, which is not climate controlled at all. It's a garage and storage below here. Oh, man. Um, I had to put in, uh, it's twice as big as what it really needs to be for the amount of space, which the studio is about, I think it's about 800 square feet. Oh, that's pretty cool. But it's still, it's, I think the temperature here is supposed to be 109 today. So oh, I'm my not, God. Yeah, I can be up here, but I don't have any of the equipment on. And I'm not going to do that during the day for a while because the, the temperature is just too, too high. Yeah, so yeah. Do you have a, a, a video of a tour of all 800 square feet of your studio? Um, most, no, I don't think I have a specific video about that, but you'll see the two different parts of the studio are the area where I'm sitting, the control room, and then right. the drum area. And that's really all there is. There's only two spaces and then there's a restroom, but that's not really in any of the videos. It does have a restroom <laughs> and a, a dorm refrigerator up here. So it's kind of self-contained, oh, even wow. though... It's right next to my, my home, so I can go down the stairs over into the house as well. So getting from home to the studio is pretty easy. It's just out the door, up the stairs, and into the studio. Oh, wow. So you have like a, a separate building for it. Right. It used to That's be a fun. garage apartment. We just have a separate garage building, and this used to be a garage apartment. But I recognized when I saw it that the sloped ceiling and everything and i've got wood like the shiplap kind of i don't know what type of wood this is but it's fairly porous oh wow so it actually is a really decent sounding room and i didn't really do a whole lot there is some um 
some like RLX type foam behind the drums and over the doors that come into the studio, but I didn't really do a lot of a wow. lot of that. I'm used to recording. I'm used to recording in houses, you know, for for years. Um, I don't know. My story it starts back, you know, in the late '80s in my parents' barn with a four track is when I started recording. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Tell me more. Um, let's see. So after the four track days, I um, I went from the four track to a Tascam 488 cassette eight track. And, you know, I was dumb and young and borrowed the money from the bank to buy that, which, you know, because I was I don't know, 18 or 19 years old at the time. And I just had to have more than four tracks to record, you know. Heck yeah. <laughs> I did some recordings with that in a trailer house that I rented. And I actually got some really good recordings with that with that uh, 488 or a three. What is it? Three is the, the one that has the mixer built in a task cam. I think it's a 488 is what I had. Okay. And and then from there, I ended up at recording school in Arizona and graduated from the Conservatory of Recording Arts and Sciences in 1997. Nice. And, yeah. And then I've lived in Dallas for several years and I worked in commercial studios in Dallas. Oh, wow. And then came back to East Texas. I worked at a place in a little bitty town called Groveton, Texas, that's close to where I am now, Lufkin. And they had a, a really nice studio out there. And I thought when I, I left, actually left Dallas and left my recording career because of my first wife and mm. we were having some issues. And so I chose to move back to East Texas sort of to save my marriage. And because the studio I was working at um, was having some issues and I wasn't really able to make a good living. Mm. So I came back to East Texas I thought there is no way that I'm going to get a job doing anything audio related back in little bitty East Texas. And lo and behold, I got a job at Stonewall Studios in Groveton and worked out there. And then amazingly enough, I got a job at a big club called Jitterbugs in Nacogdoches, Texas. And I was the house sound engineer and I got to work with a lot of country artists at the time. This was around the early 2000s. Wow. And I worked with people like... Uh, People like Montgomery Gentry came through, Gene Watson, uh, Don Williams was one of the performers that played there. Um, I even got to, I ran monitors and got to meet Hank Williams III um, at nice. that job. So that was interesting. <laughs> and that was really fun for me. I'm not a really big country fan. I'm definitely more of like classic rock, alternative rock. And here I am working at this big country bar with all these. <laughs> But it was great. You know, the musicians and all the bands that came through were really easy to work with and they were really pleasant. So that was a really overall, that was a good experience. And I actually learned to appreciate country music at that point, which was, I'm from yeah. Texas and I didn't listen to country. So that was kind of strange. Some great relationship. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's how I ended up there. And then I did, you know, the era of recording my bands in like my apartment. You know, after I came back to East Texas and then I stopped working at the studio in Groveton and I was in a funk band for a while and we recorded in my apartment in downtown Nacogdoches. And of course, I had to tell all my neighbors in the complex, hey, we're going to record an album in my apartment. So we did it during the day and we got permission from everybody. <laughs> so that became the era of, you know, a portable rig. We had a, the band had a 24 channel Mackie and we had three Tascam DA88s to record our, our stuff with. 
but I think the most we ever got to work was two of the D88s. So everything we did ended up being 16 track because the D88s had issues. Hmm. So yeah, I went through that era of moving, moving around and recording in places, you know, wherever I could. Um, so I've had a lot of other studio setups for a while. I, after that time period, I had this little shack in a little bitty town called Appleby, north of Nacogdoches, and I had a soundtrack has and I had an MCI JH1624 track in that little bitty shack. Wow. And so I had that until I moved. Um, I got married to my second wife and we had a house. I put my studio in the back room of our house at that point, which used to be a sunroom. And so that was the having to have an electrician come in and wire that room. And it was a sunroom. And it's like, well, I need to turn these windows and stuff into walls because the acoustics are not going to be very good with all this glass. So that was an interesting time period. And uh, then I moved to a duplex. I was in a duplex for a while, which is where a lot of the current string of albums that I've done over the last 10 years, a lot of that was started in that duplex. And that those days, it was a pretty big living room with wood floors and I had the drum kit in the living room. And of course, it was a rental property, so I couldn't drill any holes in the floor of the wall. So I had the mic snake running down the hall and the control room was set up. Uh. In my so I wake up and roll over and there was the console and everything against the wall next to the bed. <laughs> and then from there, I came here to, to this to this studio. And that was uh, six, six years, I think, I've been here. And the equipment has been upgraded significantly, mainly because I have the space to actually own things like the Sapphire now. Yeah, so. how exciting. Yeah. And then you've got lots of videos with all different kinds of tape decks and boards and mixers. And do you still have all of those or do they come and go for the videos? They come and go for the videos, depending. I mean, some of them, I don't necessarily plan on buying something and making a video and then selling it. But I will buy things specifically because I want to make a video about it and, you know, just educate people about especially some of the older equipment. The Tascam M35 is one of the more recent ones that I've done a lot of videos about. I own and that, that yeah. it, it sounds surprisingly good. And <laughs> you know, years ago when I was looking you know, in the 90s, when I was kind of really getting into the gear and stuff, I would have never thought it's something from that era of Tascam. It was minus 10 unbalanced RCA connections like, blah, we don't want that, you know. <laughs> but, but that M35 actually sounds really good. <laughs> it's just one of those things I cycle through things and it's really just kind of random. I don't have a plan to it. I just pick up things when they're available if I think I can make a cool video. And, you know, eventually I sell some of the stuff if I need to. And sometimes I don't. It just, yeah. just kind of depends. They'll stick around for a while and then I'll sell them and get something else in. Usually the reason is because I start running out of space. <laughs> and then I'll start to sell things so I can actually walk around in my studio again. And <laughs> it gets where there's no music, no room for the musicians or to actually make music, then it's not much of a studio. So <laughs> it's a museum. <laughs> <laughs> I've always liked the idea of the different buildings, though. That's cool that you have like a different structure on your property where your studio is. I remember uh, being invited to go meet Will Ackerman 
at his place in Vermont, and he had like three or four different buildings on his property that he had built himself out of the trees that were on his property. And one was a home, and one was a house just for his wife to paint, and one was an office, and one was the recording studio. And it was just so interesting. Of course, you know, there's four electric bills and four <laughs> heating systems and AC systems. It's like, it's pretty complex, but um, it seemed interesting. Uh, because for a while, like in my first house in 2000 till about 2006, I had everything in my living space. So, you know, when you're young, you think, yeah, you just roll out of bed and there's your console and that's cool. Or like McCartney running out, rolling out of bed and there's a piano and he starts writing yesterday from a dream. Um, it's very helpful. But then also you start to feel a little crowded sometimes. So it's nice to separate your workspace from your living space. Like some people true. can't do that in their head even, you know, they can never stop working because they're a creative person 24-7, you know? Like, do you I find you have to turn things on and off just to say, okay, I'm a husband right now? I do find that I have to do that somewhat. Um, it, it, it comes in cycles for me, though. There, are there have been times in my life when I absolutely cannot turn off different music that's running through my head. I can't sleep at night because I have just like fully formed pieces of music. And of course, I'm not the most skilled musician. And so I'm hearing all this in my head like that's wonderful. And I know it's like I'll never be able to figure out how to actually bring that idea into reality. Huh. Um, I mean, I'm a decent musician, but I'm much more, I'm a stronger engineer and an audio person, even though I do play guitar, bass, drums, a little bit of piano and keyboards, but I'm not, nice. I'm not the, not the greatest musician in the world. I'm more of kind of, are you familiar with Stephen Wilson? No. Porcupine Tree, and he also does a lot of the remixes of classic albums. He's remixed some, uh, uh, some of my favorite, one of my favorite bands is Gentle Giant, and he's done a lot of remixes of some of their classic albums from the '70s. But he said something to that effect: is he's more of the big idea guy, right? And he finds like the best musicians to bring in to bring his ideas to life. And of course, I don't have that luxury. I'm usually the only person. I'm, yeah, I, I know other musicians, but coordinating schedules is difficult and everything. Hmm. You so guys are pretty spread out. Um. Mostly, but where I am, they're not. They're not a lot of people that uh, that do anything other than country and bluegrass music, and and okay. that, that's great. I've worked with some of those people too. I actually love producing that kind of music because it's simple and you can get good sounds fairly easily. Mm. But the you know, for my own music and those projects, I only have a few friends that I really work with in this area. The main one is Heath Rogers. Um, he's the He's the creative genius behind Homespun Centaurs as one of the bands that I've done, I think, I don't know how many, it's three, three or four albums. Let's see, there are three full-length albums and an EP nice. that I've done with, with Heath. And yeah, I'm basically kind of an honorary member of the band because on the recordings I play the drums and I do you know, the mixing and stuff. But it's all Heath's oh, cool. material. He's the songwriter. Yeah. And he's one of the people that I've worked with the most. So he, Homespun Centaurs, uh, Circular Corners is also Heath. Um, that's more of an ambient, instrumental kind of band. And then the third one that we did was Shadow Plus Echo, which is the same thing. It's just another name for Heath. Heath's music. 
but he tends to have different names because he's so varied in the style of music that he does. So Homespun Stars is kind of an Americana, Americana, a little more acoustic, but it's still alternative rock kind of music. And then Circular Corners is ambient instrumental. And then Shadow Plus Echo is a little more, um, I don't really know what you'd call it. It's definitely more loud guitars and stuff than Homespun. <laughs> And it's the same guy, but we he used different names, which I thought was kind of why you know why are you doing that? You're gonna spread things out where people, but it's mm. because he writes different styles, and putting something like the Shadow Plus Echo songs on a Homespun Centaurs record wouldn't work because they're completely different. Yeah, so, maybe <laughs> that's I one of my it's... that's the, yeah. Go ahead. I was just saying Homespun Centaurs is absolutely one of my favorite bands that I've ever worked with, even though I'm kind of a part of it. But it's mostly I just support Heath and bring help bring his ideas to life in the studio. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Well, I guess it just depends on how much he is like the celebrity of them all. Like if somebody just likes what he's doing, mm -hmm. some people might be able to follow him down any genre you know and just more of him we just need more of him that's that's what i i enjoy working with him because he he's just a great songwriter and so mm -hmm. no matter what style he's presenting me with uh for the current project that you know the material is always going to be pretty strong he's just a, he's just a good writer so that's cool yeah yeah now when you say the music in your head you're trying to get out that's your music you're referring to right yeah. I've made three albums, but the last one was in 2017. And I have another seven songs that I've recorded since then. Mm -hmm. And there are bits, bits and pieces of those or in some of the videos, the intro music, but I've never actually finished those. Mm -hmm. So there's a, there's a incomplete album that I started on back in, I think, 2018, the year after my last album came out. And I've just never completed it. And since I never completed it, I took the bits and pieces and I mixed just instrumental versions of them and i've used those in a lot of youtube videos for intros and just may have used part of them for some of the mixing videos too just because it's you know whatever material i have that i can present in the video um it, it has to be something i have permission to use so i use some of this unreleased material for different things yeah sure what I really lacked was lyrics i've never been able to write lyrics because the newer stuff it's almost a southern rock style album which is oh. kind of similar to the very first ones that i did but really really different from the last album i actually released under my own name uh, and that the other was albums? Almost, i have three in, that i've put out uh the first one in 2010 is called subliminal moonshine and the second one from 2011 is called moon dust and the third one from 2017 is 13 channels. Nice. And they're all varied. The first two are more similar to each other. 13 channels is a completely different kind of record. Um, I was actually listening to, have you heard of a band called Car Carnival from Australia? No. They're a progressive rock band. Um, the closest thing that you might be familiar with is the band Tool. Okay. Which is not, that's not my favorite band. I used to like Tool. I've seen them in concert, but I would not really listen to Tool. But Carnival is similar to that. And so that album is very modern, progressive rock. 
compared to the first two, which are much more classic rock, and they even have some kind of alt-country or Americana influence on my first two albums. And then I com completely went left field and made this kind of like atmospheric progressive rock album that's, I think it's great, but no one else liked it. The first two everyone liked when I put out 13 channels, even my friends and stuff, they just, uh, they didn't get it. So I don't surprised. know. I, I get it. So. Well, there's a lot more people on the planet, you know? We can't right. really say nobody liked it because not everybody's even heard it. So <laughs> that's true, you know, and that's the thing is most of the work I do in here and the people that I talk about on the YouTube channel that I've worked with, they're they're not anyone that anyone knows about. Everything that I've been involved with in the audio industry is mostly just small independent artists and they're not widely known. So, but that's okay. That's you know keeps the pressure off of me and we're actually <laughs> getting something it's not really done for commercial reasons you know not myself and most of the people i work with i mean we'd like for the music to be heard but it's more about we're we're actually trying to make art i guess that's silly but music is to me music is art and we're you know trying to do something that is at least somewhat interesting or innovative and trying to do something different and you know um when i made my last album 13 channels i didn't really care i made it i made it for me and i actually exactly. would, yeah so. I, I think that's what's important for artists to do i don't I, I think most of the great artists are unknown you know getting known or having that kind of uh exposure whether you call it uh wanted or unwanted or good or bad you know to say to be known or unknown is better, whatever. You know, it's right. it's like that's a whole game unto itself. It's got nothing to do with being an artist or being a musician. So if you're not working at that, I don't think there's something wrong with that. I don't think everything has to be monetized. So yeah, right. I'm, I'm right there with you. It's like anything that you want to do. You know, like if somebody was making pottery or somebody was painting, the first thing wouldn't always be, so when are you going to make a ton of those so you can sell them? You know, it, it doesn't even enter the equation sometimes. But these days, everything wants to be monetized or, uh, you know, you're a failure if it's not making you a bundle or whatever. And I, I don't think any of that has anything to do with it. In fact, no. some of the things that are making the most money don't even sound that musical, you know, so, <laughs> I mean, the, the whole thing is, is made up and it's a joke, you know, it's like, just do what you love and, and make what you want to make and enjoy what you want to enjoy. There's, there are no rules. I think that's what we all get hung up on. It's like, oh, but it's not this. And I'm so bored of reading reviews of music that say, well, it's not this and it's not this. And this new Eric Clapton album is not this and it's not that. And it's certainly not like his album that he did, blah, blah, blah. It's like, can't you just review what is rather than compare it to everything he's ever done? Nobody's asking you for a retrospective of his career. You know, it's like, it's just right. so funny the way people jump in on things. And it's always with this negative spin or, ah, gotcha. Going to show you how this person's a failure or going to show you how this person crashed and burned because that's what humans do or that's how artists are so stupid and you're like oh my god you know why is it always the lowest of the low and the cheapest shot you know it's like a bad comedian always doing 
bad language or poo-poo jokes or whatever. It's like, don't you have any kind of intelligence where you can, here's a comparison, why don't you be a little bit more like Jerry Seinfeld, something that's actually funny and intelligent, you know? <laughs> like, so then it starts sounding like, okay, now I'm getting judgmental, you know, but there are flavors, I think, is what you're talking about. And there's levels of uh, engagement. You know, so like when I was searching around on YouTube saying, okay, well, how are people doing hybrid studios these days? And how are people playing with mixers if anybody is? That's how I found your channel. So that's what got me excited. It was like, I got to write to Grady because he's doing these fun things. And I'm finding for me, like uh, recently I watched that fish documentary and it was so cool to watch them talking about the studio over at this part of Vermont and then his friend's studio over there and they start a project here and they go and finish it over there. And I, there was just so much camaraderie and so much interaction and company and uh, creativity together. And I just thought, you know, I, I got to start reaching out to people because like you say, most of the creative people I know are spread out around the world. You know, mm -hmm. I wish I lived next door to all of the people I've been speaking to so that I could have more interaction and more uh, creative volleys with, but I think because we can share files and because of Zoom and things like this, we can visit. We we can, you know, meet and mm -hmm. stuff. And I think that's fantastic. So uh, as always, it's like let's just try to embrace whatever technology is available and get as close to the thing. This effervescent, I can't even put my finger on what I'm looking for thing. I could at least try a few things, at least reach out and, and just say hello and see if anything is is receptive somewhere, you know? And I'm finding right. that as I talk to each person, we're all looking for the same thing, you know? We're all looking for some kind of connection and wish we could do this every week or wish this was happening once a month somewhere where we could all physically actually be in the same space. You know, like people are trying to start all kinds of uh, artistic hangs and things. It's cool. I think that's great. We we do need to collaborate more like that, especially, you know, the audio engineering community, uh, people that are into this kind of thing, especially the people that still want to use an analog console. Mm. And you know, believe it or not, I didn't even know that they called that hybrid mixing when I started the YouTube channel. I just knew because I started with analog gear. And then Yeah, me too. What happened is about two thousand seven my youngest son was going to be born he was born in 2007 and when he was born i had a little a little one and at the time i was running a soundtracks console and i had the mci jh1624 track in my oh. home studio it was a glorified home studio obviously with the big mc oh. so i had that set up and the reason i switched to digital was because of having a young child in the house. And I figured I need something that if I want to record a song, I can go in, flip the power on, and I'm ready to go. Instead of like with the MCI, I have to go in, potentially calibrate the entire machine to make sure the transport's adjusted because those old MCI machines are a little bit uh, mm. persnickety, I'll say. It was persnickety. And I just, <laughs> didn't think, I just didn't feel like I had the time to go in you know, do alignments and calibrations with the tape machine. So I was still using analog tape until 2008. And I only quit because of the birth of a young child. And I thought, well, I won't have time to make any music in my studio if I keep the analog machine. Isn't that but, interesting? 
It really is. So I switched to, I bought a pair of audio interfaces and I just naturally okay. looked the audio interfaces up the same way I would have a tape machine. And I just went from there. I didn't even yeah. know they called it hybrid mixing. I came from the old school where I used tape machines. In college, it was Otari MTR90s. Nice. And then, and then I worked in studios in Dallas that had a combination of an M MCI machines and then ADATs and Tascam DA88s, but all of that was still using a console yes. because they were, you know, the modular digital multi-tracks and not a, not a digital audio workstation. And so that's when, when I sold the MCI is when I bought audio interfaces. And at first I was using Sonar. Sonar nice. 7 or Sonar 8, I think. I think I had Sonar 7 and then went to Sonar 8 or 8.5. Wow. Um, so that was my beginnings of hybrid for me, but I didn't even know that it was hybrid at the time. I just thought, oh, well, these audio interfaces are my tape machine now, and I have a computer that connects to them. And I thought about getting a hard disk recorder, but I thought, well, I'm also a computer person. I'm an IT uh, systems engineer. I've done that for 25 years. Wow. So that was kind of weird because, you know, I do that for a living in my day job, and yet I was not, I didn't jump on board the digital audio workstation until, you know, 2008. Hmm. I had seen it in college. We used Pro Tools. It was Pro Tools 3, you know, at the time, really, really wow. old version of Pro Tools. So that's so so cool. it was just a weird thing. And then I figured out when I started doing YouTube, that's when I figured out, oh, they called this hybrid mixing. I said, hey, I know how to do it. I know how to do that. And I said, I bet I could make some videos that might help some people that want to, you know, they may have an old console laying around and help them out. And That's so I made some videos and they're really, those were the most popular ones I've made. And I kind of scratched my head and I said, I guess more people like this than I thought. So. But it's amazing how organically you fell into all that. Yeah. Because it's just really, well, this is my background and this is how we did it. You know, this isn't anything super cool you know it's like ooh, hybrid like it's a new thing or whatever it's like no it's just merging what was to what is and right. i always thought the most fun part was the console so when i switched to logic in 2005 i was kind of disappointed and depressed that the the, the most fun part was gone I was glad there was no more tape hiss because I was on a half-inch eight-track, and then I had those ADAT machines, which were really a drag having four of those trying to lock up all the time and which one would spin out or spin off, and you'd have to open it up and repair it and all these nonsense and the offsetting every time you wanted to add a section to a tune or cut a section out. It was a lot of... Uh, I can't even remember how we did that stuff, but it was like all those things I would do to lengthen a song or shorten a song. And... Uh, I didn't realize that I could have plugged my big Studio Master Track Mix 32 into the interfaces and still right. gotten into my computer, which I kept using Logic as a tape machine. I barely knew what else Logic did. I was just considering it like the recorder, like you say. And then I got so used to not using a console, but still missing it. So that when I got the console, I was like, what do you do with this thing now? Like, it's not attached to anything. Now you got to buy all this other outboard stuff just to use half the auxes and to have all the buttons do something, you know? And I was watching videos where a guy was showing you how you could use the aux ends to actually affect effects in Logic from your analog console. And I was like, oh, mamma mia. Like, there's, it, there was a lot to learn with the ins and outs of how things talk to each other and how you can actually affect 
the right thing you're trying the the right parameter you know right. i even tried the uh the Tascam 1884 trying to have just a controller thinking i could mix with that but that was a drag and it was an interface built in it didn't really work really well as a mixer and i still have the uh, behringer x touch for just a quick balance a bunch of faders if you want to you know just quickly just get a balance together but there's like a lot of features on that and on uh, the audience behind me that uh, it's like, how else can I hook this up and use this? So that's exactly why I look up people like you to say, <laughs> what are you doing? You know, like what other fun can we have in here? You know, it's, it's something I, I answer a lot of comments on my videos and that's something that I've, you know, tried to help people with. Hmm. Um, you need to kind of understand analog signal flow in order to understand how to use it with a digital system. But okay. the good thing is if you understand how the analog studio works and you understand how your digital audio workstation software and your interface works, mm. then there are so many different tricks you can do. I probably even haven't thought of everything I could do with so many different analog inputs and outputs on both analog gear and digital gear. If you know what you're doing, you can route anything to anywhere and do all kinds of crazy stuff. Yeah. I, have, I, I, tend, to, I tend to stick with more of the old analog tricks, but mm. that's all I can say. Oh, well, I, yeah, I did rig up a bunch of patch bays and I have tons of options now. And it took forever to hook up a bunch of different things and to get things to really work. Because, as you know, like those virtual tracks that come back out of your DAW, where are they going to actually be in digital to analog and analog to digital and, and all this converting and whatever's. And now I'm at that point where it's like, okay, starting a new album, how do you want to work? You know, before it was really easy as a songwriter, like you say, just jump right in, plug things in, just go. But now, right. I mean, some days you feel like being the engineer. Some days you got nothing, you know, what am I going to play to actually record? I want to record something. Like, it depends on which which part of the project you're on. And then once I'm in a project, it's like all systems go. Like, you can't get your head out of it, and you're just busy, busy, busy getting to the finish line, you know. But starting another one, it's like now there's too many options. I don't even know which end is up some days. Right. <laughs> I, I just well, I started, cracked myself up. I started mixing things back on the analog console after I got this Sapphire because oh, wow. it, I I compared it. There's probably some videos. I don't remember. I've made so many videos on my channel. Yeah. I don't remember right off the top of my head. I'd have to go back and look, but I'm pretty sure there's some videos comparing the sound of the console with summing in the box. Yes. And I started using this and the console, it just has so much headroom. Mm. And and it just has a really wide sound to it that you can't really get in the com in the computer, you know. Are you doing any effects in the box or any sometimes detailed EQ in the box, and then just more broader EQ on the mixer? Sometimes I do. It it depends. Mostly, if I need something really surgical EQ wise, I'll use a plugin. Right. But for shaping the sound and actually building the mix, I'm using console EQ for almost everything. So there may be, in a typical mix, there may be three or four tracks in the whole whole mix that have any kind of a plug-in on them. Um, one of the most common things I'll do is I'll use a tape plug-in on certain things hmm. uh, before it hits the console because 
obviously once it comes out of the audio interface output it is already affected by the plugin before it hits the analog system so right. you have to be mindful of that of course some of the hybrid mixers you can actually put the plugin in line and mm -hmm. do different things but since this is a you know regular old school analog console whatever i do in the box is already affected before it hits the analog system so there's a balancing act there sometimes but i generally will try to do as much as i can with the console and with analog outboard gear and i'll only use things in the plugin usually plugins are for problem solving and if i have to correct something and is so, that for tracking or just for mixing or both that's usually for mixing um tracking I don't really track with a lot of compression or anything. Occasionally I will. Um, I had a band that had a bass player at one time and he was really clanky. He had a very, he had a very aggressive playing style. Hmm. And so he had a lot of transients in his playing. And so I had to track him through a Yuri compressor just to be able to actually record the track without just having spikes and craziness all over the play. So, used the part, yeah. <laughs> right? Especially if I'm tracking on tape, then, you mm. know, sometimes if I'm tracking the tape, I'll add a little high end to uh, cymbals, uh, you know, overheads, hi-hat, just to counteract the DBX noise reduction on the Tascam. But I don't generally find I have to do at nearly as much compression if I'm tracking the tape because the analog tape saturation. And to me, I don't know, do you have DBX on your MS-16? Do you I use don't. DBX? You don't? Okay. No. I was just curious because I have it on my MSR 16 and it, to me, it sounds like I have a little bit of DBX compression on everything. Oh. I don't know if that's something anyone else has ever noticed. I've never seen anyone mention that, but it almost yeah. sounds like I'm running everything through just a little bit of DBX compression. <laughs> and I know that's how the noise reduction works. It compresses the audio and then expands it on playback. Mm. I'm thinking it actually kind of has the sound of a DBX compressor just a little bit, just that kind of nice. I don't know what the sound a DBX compressor gets, but there's a particular signature that that, that they have. And I really like, like that. Yeah. I love it on snare drum, especially a DBX oh. compressor or or a Symmetrix 501. You know, all I have is cheap cheap analog gear, but I, I find that. that I, I used to uh, rent that one, the Symmetrix 501. It worked very easily and nicely. They're a very good compressor. I have one, and mine was mine's a newer model, and it was made in 1999. And, of course, everybody on the forums back then, when I actually used to frequent the forums before it became more YouTube and Facebook groups like it is now, but people would say the ones on the Symmetrix 501, the ones with the metal switches, are way better than the newer ones. Okay. But I, have, I have one with the plastic switches. This thing sounds great. I think I've had my 501 for 20 years or something, and it's... Right. It gets used all the time. I don't see that the metal switch version would sound any better or any different. I don't know. There's a lot of hype about things. and It depends uh, on the updated. Yeah. Right. But what so, do you mix to once it's coming off? Back to, back, back to digital. Back into the box? Mm -hmm. Back into the box. The master out of the console. If I have anything on the overall mix, it'll be on the console inserts. Uh, most of the time, I don't mix with any master bush compression. Occasionally, I will. Usually, that's going to be uh, the RNC. I'll use an RNC with an EQ in the sidechain. So I can okay. kind of sculpt the RNC on the bus always in super nice mode. You know, just 
barely compressing a little bit and then tweaking the side chain with the graphic EQ just uh, and or or nothing on the bus. And then the output of the console goes back into a pair of inputs on the interface. And that's the final mix print. The RNC is a compressor? Yes, the really nice compressor. Hold on, I actually had it close by. Some of oh. the stuff I can't show you, but the RNC, I can unhook it right here. The really nice compressor. This this little guy. Oh, how cute. These are fantastic. These are made by FMR Audio in Texas. I think they're in Austin, Texas. Of course, this one has a Mercenary, if anybody remembers Mercenary Audio. That's where I, I got this from Mercenary. So I've had this for a long time, too. I remember that. Name. These are great little compressors. This is a digitally controlled analog compressor. Oh, cool. So very, very, uh, can be extremely transparent which is why it works so great on the master bus. It has the little super nice mode button. It's not plugged in, so I can't make it turn on, but that super nice mode switch, that, <laughs> on, that on a mix, on a, on the mix bus. Um, and then What's I'll it doing dive. unplugged? <laughs> yeah. It's a great, that's a great little compressor. And it I think like I bought a snack. that. It looks like, you, yeah. like a sandwich. You could just... <laughs> They're a little, it's a little small thing, but I, I mean, it's a great compressor. It's actually one of my favorites and, it's uh, the only thing I don't like the RNC on is it cannot handle bass guitar for some reason. You cannot put a bass through it. It just can't handle it. It overloads wow. it. And it. It does very well. It's my uh, vocal. If I'm tracking vocals, that's another thing. I do track vocals with compression a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And if if I'm tracking a vocal with compression, it's going to be going to be this with the super nice mode on. Hmm. It's really smooth. Of course, I could use you know, an optical compressor or something, but this, just a little bit of this to keep the levels under control is really all I need. I really prefer, even back when I was using analog tape, I prefer to do most of the changing to the sound in the mix. Mm. That's the way we were taught in college was, you know, you don't want to take too much away. If you take something away when you're recording it, then you can't get it back. Exactly. And so that's always been my philosophy is record as close to full fidelity to tape or your recording medium as you can. And then you can always change that in the mix. But if you take mm. something out, then you can't get it back. Right. So that was the way I was trained in college is, you know, don't don't EQ and compress the tape unless you have to. Is I was very much taught by like the old the old school method because I learned from these people in the 90s, you know. Yeah. So. Well, yeah, those days it was beautiful because it was about capturing a live group of players and don't mess it up, you know? Right. And um, it was a broader, bigger net, I think, like you say, to catch all the music and not interfere with it too much. And I think everybody's getting very nitpicky these days, putting like 15 plugins on every track and... You know, it's it's you dive deep into every plugin, and you come out a different rabbit hole three days later. <laughs> you, end, you end up wasting a lot of time that way, is what yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. I wasted a lot of time, and it was uh, that Not is definitely something. That, <laughs> that's uh, that's something that I noticed too. And another thing I noticed is when you know, because I went to in two thousand eight, I sold the MCI. I still had a console, but I would track through the console. And then I would mix in the box for mm -hmm. a long time. Yeah. And when I switched back to, you know, doing hybrid, what we call it now, hybrid mixing, I realized that 
on a vocal track in the box, I might have five plugins. Or on a bass guitar, I might have a compressor to get the tone right. Then I might have a multiband compressor to keep the low notes from overwhelming the mix when, you know, depending right. on how the player was playing. And I end up with all these amounts of plugins on these tracks. Mm-hmm. And I switched over to using the analog console. And all of a sudden, hey, I don't need all those plugins. It sounds pretty close already. I just need to do a little bit of EQ, maybe patch in one compressor instead of three in a series. Wow. And so that's what got me thinking is like maybe these plugins are not really processing the audio the way that we think they are. I know. And why on earth does my Yuri LA10 compressor, I can use that on almost any bass bass part and it just does a job that it just does what i want to do where um with the plugins to get that same effect on the same bass track it might take me four plugins adjusted differently and i can throw that bass through the la10 and it's just done it's already there yeah i don't i mean that could be my own fault that may be a that may be a me thing maybe i don't know how to use the plugins correctly but (laughs) i just and I was able to get away with doing a lot less. Once I started mixing through the console, I did not have to work nearly as hard. The mix would come together a lot quicker. And so instead of five hours or six to mix a single song, I might have a decent mix in a couple of hours. Wow. And that was kind of mind blowing at the times. Like I have all this technology yeah. and it seems like I'm doing these great things with this computer software. And then I listen to the final mix and it's like, it's not there. Hmm. So so did, really you have, did you have these uh, different consoles as the center between your speakers uh, from the beginning? Or like when you were mixing in the box, you'd like go to another section of your studio and just mix in the box? I did a little of both of those things. Most of the time it has been set up like this. Even when I was mixing in the box, I still had the console set up kind of like it is now behind me. And yeah. I would just, uh, have a keyboard and mouse in front of the console and sit at the console but then at times I have had an, I have had another setup in another room. At one time I had a mixing station in my kitchen, which had a little built-in desk at the end of the kitchen. And so I had the big studio as the bedroom and the living room, and then I had a little mix studio with a pair of little small Fostex monitors sitting there, and I could sit in there in the kitchen and mix. Mm. So I've done a little bit of both, but most of the time, anything I've done over the last six or seven years, it's been in front of either this console or the one that was in here before, which was soundtracks that I had before the Sapphire. Yeah, yeah. So. And what's hooked up to the Sapphire now? Do you have like, um, different aux ends? Do you have different reverbs or effects or extra external EQs or? I don't have any external EQs right now. I, well, I actually do have one, but I only use it on a side chain for compression. The way the console is set up is this side is the digital system, 1 through 24. This is all the audio interface. And then the other side of it over here, which is 25 through 40, I guess, is the 16 track, the MSR 16. So they're both connected. Because this console is an inline console, so I have 44 channels, and every channel has a tape output and a tape return. Mm. So I, I just split it out like that, where my analog is on this side of the console and digital is over here. And That's I have the, the patch bay. I can patch between the two over here. So I can, and, you know, so it works pretty well. It's a really complicated setup, and I don't think anybody has, could really use this studio without me here. And there are there are patch bay maps and everything else, but I changed <laughs> things 
sitting here constantly because of YouTube. Now I'm always having to change things because I get a new console or something. It's like, okay, now I need to run a mic snakes to these to these this little console so I can run my mic panel or my drum mics connect into a different console. And so there's just it it gets it gets reworked all the time in here, mainly because of the videos. Wow. So, wow. Yeah, my videos take a really long time to make. You've watched them, they're analog gear. Mm-hmm. A typical video on my channel is between six and eight hours to film and maybe even a little more when you include all the editing time. The videos are just really, because I'm using analog gear, it means that the way that I have to film and edit the videos is more complicated than if I was just doing a screen capture like a lot of YouTubers do. Right, and you've got a few analog. cameras. Yeah. Two cameras mainly. Um, I generally have a, a, a Canon DSLR that I use, and it's an older one. It's a Rebel T something. I don't remember T3i or something like that. I have and then the I use, uh, is that what we're looking at right now? The T3i? No, this is a this is a Google Pixel phone, and this is oh. actually my second camera. I use the Google Pixel Five as my second camera. So if you if there's a two camera shot where I'm playing a drum kit or something, mm. usually the Canon will be the 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 forward-facing shot and then the overhead shot will be the phone because it's light enough to put up in the air on the tripod over the kit. Right. I uh, usually am only filming with two cameras because really that that's all I have. Mm -hmm. So, And there's only me. My videos are generally, unless you see someone else in the video, I'm the one starting the buttons and running across the room to the drum set, you know, or running know. over to the hall. I uh, do too. Yeah, it's... it's it takes a long time. I don't know if anybody. Nice. They're talking about all this AI stuff, but wouldn't it be cool if we could just clone ourselves? You know, I know. If I had five of me, that would really be helpful. <laughs> it, would, it would be great. And then, you know, if my family would come over, which I'm not going to say that my family doesn't help because they have helped push buttons, especially uh -huh. when I've done videos with the Tascam MSR 16. Yeah. Uh, and I'm running two cameras, I'm running a tape machine, I'm running two cameras, and I'm running the digital system to capture the audio as I'm recording yeah. the tape. And then I have to have somebody come help push buttons because I, I'll be you know, running around the room like a crazy person to do it. <laughs> so then so, what are you capturing all your camera or your two cameras on and your audio on? What, what, what software do you use to make your videos? Almost everything I use, now the video editing is different, but the audio stuff in my studio is all based on Reaper. I use Reaper, uh, Reaper, Reaper Digital Audio Workstation for almost everything digital that's done in the studio is done with Reaper. Okay. And then and the sound the, of the videos, you mean? Yeah, the sound of the videos is all edited together in Reaper, and then I'll output the file from Reaper and then sync that to the video. Wow. Even my voice tracks are recorded separately from the video. The cameras are, are shot separately. And then I have usually my voice mic. It's an Audio-Technica AT2020. Mm -hmm. And that's what's on my voice in nearly every video because it's a quiet mic. I can really yeah. get, I can actually get the gain high enough. I can put the microphone like two, three feet away from me and I can get good, uh, you know, good quality for dialogue that way. And I do compress that. That goes through the RNC on the way. It goes from the microphone. Usually I'm just using one of the interface preamps, nothing exotic. And then it goes through the RNC in super nice mode when I'm recording. That way I don't have to go back and compress the voice again mm. in Reaper before it syncs. I try to 
I've had, it's been a learning process. I've had to figure out how to film videos with analog gear. You know, yeah. I figured from the beginning, it's like, okay, I can't use the camera audio because the quality is just not good. Enough. And so I realized then I have to use one of my studio microphones and I'm going to have to record the audio separately and sync it or the quality is not going to be good enough. Yeah. And so it's been a learning process for me, not, uh -huh. not only knowing audio engineering, but then applying that to making YouTube videos is like a totally different world. Right. And in the video editing, I do all that in DaVinci Resolve. Oh, so. yeah, me too. Are you using the demo version or the real thing? It's just a demo version for right Me now. Too. It's uh, 18, I think, Resolve 18. Right. And that runs on, it used to run on a PC, but I have recently, the studio has now been converted to a Mac. So oh, I'm wow. using a Mac now. And I love Macs. I've had a MacBook Pro, which actually the MacBook Pro is what records the voice tracks for the videos, because a lot of times I'll be playing back things on the big system back here. Yeah. And I need a separate system. Because if I'm playing and stopping things in the video, I have to capture the audio that's coming out of the console somewhere else. So I have exactly. two separate digital audio rigs in here, one based on the MacBook Pro over here and one with a Mac Pro wow. that runs behind me. And is so, that two screens behind you or one long screen? It's two. I'm just sitting in front of those two screens. It's, they're, they're just smart TVs. 32-inch um, smart TVs, and they're mounted on wall mounts that swing out over the console. I can move them if I want to. And the way I run it is the tracks will be on the left screen for me, mm -hmm. left, and then the mixer on the right. Nice. Yeah, yeah. You don't see that in the videos too much because I don't do a lot of screen capture. But when you do see a screen capture, I'm usually capturing just the mixer screen on the right. I'm not capturing both screens. So. Right. And you're using uh, ScreenFlow for that? I use, uh, what is it called? It's a, on the Mac, I just use QuickTime because it okay. has screen capture. So on the Macs, it's QuickTime, mm -hmm. OBS Studio. That's what I used to use when I was still running Windows on the big DAW rig. That was uh, OBS Studio, which actually is really good. Um, That's super cool. It, yeah. There's so many ways to do all of this. It's amazing. Yes, and nope. it's a lot of work to figure it out. It is, it is, and and thankfully there are videos uh, on all of this to, to help us all. Um, right. You had mentioned on even one of my videos that there was something in my hybrid video talking that uh, had helped you. Do you remember what that was? Not off the top of my head. I, rem I remember that occurrence, but I don't remember. I, can't I remember saying that, but I don't remember what it was now. Yeah, I picked up a lot of things from from your videos, especially when you've talked about the MS-16, the Tascam that you have. Oh, yeah. You've gone over some of that in some videos, which was interesting to me because I've always liked those machines. I know. I had the chance to buy a 24-track Sony, a two-inch machine, a couple of months ago, and I passed it up because I didn't want a big washing machine down here. I'm like, where am I going to put the beast? <laughs> But I have right. a picture of it, a picture of the very one that I passed up on a big canvas uh, <laughs> photo print, which is fun to look at. Because growing up in the 70s, that's what studios looked like, consoles and tape decks. And it still looks cool to me. It's, it's inspiring yeah. to just glance up at it once in a while. But I love yeah. the quiet. 
And I love that I don't have to wait for it to rewind. And I love so many things about digital. So it's not a bad thing to be in sort of this hybrid world. The only reason I got the MS-16 was that I missed my 8-track half-inch machine. I just, it looks very similar to it. It's easy to keep in a rack and it doesn't take up as much space as the 24-track. And it was like a throwback, just like an old friend to have back in there. And I have recorded directly to it and overdubbed and used all 16 tracks. And I have just recorded through the mixer, through the tape deck, right to Logic, you know, just to warm the tracks and tapeify them, I guess. Um, still not sure how the best way is I want to work because the Audient 4816 has the ability of keeping the tape deck hooked up as well as Logic. And so I can use them independently. I can go back and forth either or or together. And because it's an inline console, it's like I could have something returning in one place and going out another. Right. And, uh, it's, it's wild because the ins and outs on this thing are just like endless. It, it, it's, I, I have to make little notes for myself, pages of notebooks of like, where did I hook this up and <laughs> how did I get that working the other day? I was in a flow. And I can see why people just want to mix or just want to produce or just want to track because then you can keep your studio in one kind of configuration and just boom, 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 boom do your thing. But because I'm writing and producing and arranging and playing all the instruments, it's like I always want the mics ready to go on every instrument. And I want things like hooked up instantly. And it's like, well, now you have to patch it because not everything could be normal. So how do you want to work? And it's, right. it's an, an interesting conundrum because I feel like I haven't sorted out my favorite way to work yet. That's why I like to talk to folks like you. <laughs> My favorite way to work is probably hybrid and just using the the uh, the digital audio workstation and interfaces like it's a tape machine. Yeah. And of course, I can do things in there too. So I love having the ability to use a plugin. But I, I very I prefer even when I'm tracking to. Luckily, my interfaces do a cool thing. They act like a tape machine. They pass the input signal straight to the output. It's kind of like when your tape machine is in, in input mode, input monitor mode. And that's what these audio interfaces, they're older ones. They're uh, Echo Audio Fire 12s. Huh. But they have really good conversion. And they have this thing where they have a little mixer panel. And you can unmute so that the input of that channel passes straight tr through to the output like a tape machine. Like so a it allows, Right. It's, it's kind of like that. It just goes through the input to the output. So the monitor fader on the console is actually the output of the tape machine and the small fader sending to the tape machine. That's what so this would do, yeah. Right, I'm listening to the return of the tape machine, even when it's not in record, if it's in, you know, the interfaces act like they're in input monitor mode. Right. So I can set levels when I'm not even recording on, on Reaper or anything. Nice. So that, that's the way that I generally work. Uh, let's see. Oh, getting notifications on my phone. So that's generally the way I work is I just treat the computer and the interface like it's a tape machine. It's a tape machine that can do a lot more than an old tape machine can. Mm -hmm. But that's how it gets treated in my studio. Even when I'm tracking, that's how I work is I'll have 
everything going to the separate channels. And instead of building a monitor mix in the DAW, I build my monitor mix on the faders because my interfaces are sending all those input signals back out through the console. Right. So I'll just build my monitor mix and then I can build my headphone mix for the musicians from a combination of the monitor mix and the aux synth, just like you would in the analog days. Yeah. So basically my whole philosophy is using the computer as if it's a, a very, very um, advanced tape machine with a lot more features than the actual analog machines had. So those interfaces don't have to be reconverted back to analog because they just had that feature built in. Right. They just pass the input signal through the output. That's why I've kept them, even though technically they're kind of out of date because they're firewire. Well, that's probably the, why they made them that way, because they were coming from where we right. were both coming from in analog days prior. Well, they it's, don't make them anymore, but Echo did put out new Mac drivers for the firewire. So I'm running a Mac Pro with Monterey, and the drivers for the Echo Audio Fire still work with that, which is fantastic. I don't think they will if I update Mac OS, but this is fine. It's modern enough for me for now. Mm -hmm. I'm not one of those guys that upgrades my digital stuff all the time. No. Um, I, that's what I do in my daily life is IT work. Mm -hmm. And if you upgrade something, sometimes it causes problems. So because of that background, because of that background, I'm much more likely to take it slow if I make any changes. Yeah, in fact, yeah, I keep the same version of Reaper. Reaper puts out new versions all the time. And my, mm -hmm. my workstation, I keep this. I was still running Reaper 5 until I switched to the Mac three or four months ago. I was still running, you know, mini versions behind on Reaper because, hey, it was working right. Yeah. I want to change most, it or upgrade it. No, so. most of the new versions of Logic that I've heard about have everything to do with beats and, you know, people creating drum grooves and things like that. And um, I'm I'm recording real drums, so I, I haven't upgraded Logic either. I kept doing all the uh, updates to a 2018, no, a 2014 Mac a bunch of years ago and updating all the plugins all the time. And then it got to the point where my Mac was working at 300 CPU and Apple was laughing at me saying, you can't run this, you need to buy a new computer. So I thought, okay, so now the trick is don't do the updates, keep your computer working. But then uh, you have to take the computer offline because now the protocols are bad for the operating system. You can't use it as an internet connection. It's not trustworthy, and it won't work. And all the plugins often have built-in things that say, here's an update, here's an update, why don't you do this? This is unplugged. You should update this. So I stay offline, you know? And That's uh, what I do. That's what I do, too. My main digital audio workstation rig back here, it's not yeah. connected to the Internet. Yeah. So that means I still have to use – well, I don't have it here, but it means I still have to use iLock because – I right. don't have an internet connection on my main rig. Now, I, I can put it online if I want to. I actually have a separate uh, router and switch that it goes through, and I have the setting on that router to tell it not to let this Mac have internet access, but it can still talk to the other computers on the network, so I can move files around internally, but it doesn't have internet access. Oh, well, that's smart, yeah. So it's a lot of my, my day job. Um, it's really helped you. My day job knowing IT has really helped, even though it's not my preference in the studio. I prefer to work with organic instruments like you do. 
yeah. drums, bass, guitar. I mean, we do use some software instruments and things just because, hey, we can't afford a Mellotron. Oh, and yeah. We, I we use really all those like, cool sounds, too. Yeah, we love that stuff because the things we can't have. Exactly. But a whole yeah, orchestra. I've got, I've got everything. English but if it's something we can have, if, you know, something I actually have in here in the yeah. studio, like the drum kit, I'm not going to use a plug-in or a sample for that because I have it. Right. So, and I have some it, cool synths over there and organs and things like that, real piano. You'll, you'll never yeah, guess what I actually do for a living now. What you do for a living? Yeah, what I've done for the last 25 years, besides I have had my studio, but I was an IT person. But what I do now is I actually teach computers to kindergarten through fifth grade at a private school. Oh, you were saying you just started teaching. Yeah. Yeah, that's my that's my day job now. I take care of the technology at the school and I teach the kids. So. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> a, new, that's a new thing for me. That, and, that and then the YouTube channel. YouTube channel is another big thing. And. That's still work on music when I can. So now, but the you say you have just regular smart TVs behind you. I have an old TV upstairs, and I brought it down here and hooked it up once, but the resolution wasn't that good. How do you get around that? Uh, these are both 1080. They're high def TVs. Um, oh, this okay. one's a Toshiba. That one, what is that? Vizio. They're not expensive TVs. I think they were actually open box. Is how I got these both at Best Buy as nice. an open special. And I just run HDMI cables from the Mac Pro, which it only has, it has an HDMI out, but they say not to use the one that's actually built into it because it won't, something about the frame rate's not as good. Right. So I have two Thunderbolt, two HDMI adapters from the Mac Pro that run these two screens. And yeah. so it's just turning the TV on and changing the input to the HDMI input on both of them, which right. is really annoying <laughs> the Toshiba Smart TV, um, I have to change the input every time I turn this thing on. It comes up with the smart <laughs> screen and Netflix and all that, and I have to go through the menu and find the HDMI input. The cheaper TV, the Vizio, over here, it doesn't do that. I turn it on, and it's on the HDMI input ready to go, and I don't understand why this one won't stay put. So the screens, having t smart TVs, I'd probably rather have actual monitors instead because I like all the smart functions. But then again, I also use this TV to watch YouTube, and I have it hooked up to the studio monitor so I can watch YouTube with really good sound quality here. Oh, so, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, everything has a plus and a minus, it seems. Right, exactly. Depending on what you're looking at, you're like either inspired and everything is going well, or you're running into all the negatives thinking that everything has got a limitation. And it's like, but everything has a limitation. So, that's my life is, is called workarounds. Yeah. You know, finding is. a workaround for things that don't work the way you expect them to. Well, this doesn't do what I really want it to do, but maybe there's a way I can work around that problem. Yeah, you know? how else can I get there? And that's that happens with analog gear. I mean, oh, yeah. uh, here's, here's a funny story. I used to work at a studio in Dallas. It's long gone now. It was called Fat Track Studios. And he had an MCI 500 series console and MCI JH16, some ADATs. And I was trying to do a mix off of 16-track analog tape, the MCI, and I had channels on the console that just were not happy. And so I'm there in the middle of the session powering down the MCI console and moving modules from the, the higher channels down so I could get 16 in a row that worked. 
because the console had a lot of issues. So wow. that was something I experienced back in the 90s. And it's like, yeah, you're taking apart a console and moving the modules of an MCI from the like channel 20 over to 16 so that you had 16 in a row so you could actually mix down your 16 track session and get your final mix. Wow. So I've had experience with that too. That probably helps uh, with some of the frustrating aspects of working hybrid and all the analog gear I have in here, that experience with, hey, it could be a lot worse. <laughs> That's yeah. a cool workaround. Yeah. Have you actually taken apart some of the gear, the older gear, and resoldered things or moved buttons if they weren't staying engaged and used a spring from another button? And I've done a little bit of that, but most of the soldering I've done in this studio is just connecting all of the analog gear. Um, I was lucky when I got this Sapphire, it came with a lot of the, the cables, the snake cables. They use the big EDAC or Elco connectors, and then yeah. they break out. Well, the, the ends of, I got all the cabling with the console, which was great because that would have been really expensive if I hadn't. Right. But all the connectors on the snakes that I got were either wrong for my gear or they had been cut off. Oh and so God. when I got this console, I literally, I came at that, at that point, I worked until full time, five days a week until 530. I'd come home at 530 and spend probably until nine or 930 soldering. And I did that for probably three months to get this console oh. installed. Oh my yeah. God. A lot of work, but it's it's actually been worth it. Now, since I got this, I have the built-in patch bay, and then I have some auxiliary patch bays. And when I got this, it took the studio to a whole nother level because then I had a piece of equipment that I could actually connect a lot of the other things that I already had to. Yeah. And the patch the convenience of the patch bay, being able to actually use analog equipment like I remembered when I used to work in commercial studios because mm -hmm. my, my own studio had just been, you know, I didn't have a lot. I might have had one patch bay, but it was mostly climb behind the console, you know, <laughs> plug things in, come back out. Oh, that's not right. Climb behind the console again. Yeah. And so when I got this and I really said, okay, I'm going to set this up the way that I've really always wanted my studio to be. Taken several years, and it's still anybody that has an analog studio. It's constantly changing. Anytime yeah. you get a new piece of equipment, you're changing things. Yep. Constantly in flux. That's just how. Just <laughs> how it is. <laughs> I know so. the studio master had all the ins and outs right at the back of the console on the top, so that you could right. change your mind and move things. And I used to do um, the send receive cables, and just put the stereo input in the top of the console and the ins and outs would go into the patch bay to all kinds of outboard gear. And I could just send and return it right to the same channel and use the balance on those outboard pieces to determine how much of that effect or EQ thing, whatever it was I was patching to was needed. But now this one's, everything's in the back and a lot of things are in the patch bay. But um, I think what, is a little confusing to me sometimes is that my Apollo interfaces from Universal Audio have the built-in virtual console. Right. So if I want to use those mic inputs, I used to have external preamps hooked up to those. And now it's like maybe you want to put them all online so that you don't have to keep putting it on the mic or line. Sometimes everything's working in the analog world, but it's not giving me a signal into logic and then I have to remember to change what's happening in the virtual console. And uh, 
it's like exactly. a console with a console with a console. It's like various extra preamps plus the preamps in that console, press the preamps in the virtual console. It's like redundant after redundant after redundant. <laughs> Even this setup's like that. I have, you know, I have the, the preamps in the console, the outboard preamps. You know, there's so many different. And then luckily my interfaces, they're fairly simple, which is why I've kept them. So I have yeah. that routing to consider because I can change my audio interfaces to send a channel to a different channel than what it came in on if I want to. But yeah, I try to keep that simple because like what you were saying, I think of that same way. I have at least three layers like that. You know, mm -hmm. you had five and what you were describing, but I have three this way. And my setup, I've kept it simple on purpose. Mm. I don't want to take too long to set up or to do anything. It's going to you know, exactly. hamper the creativity. But at the same time, my studio, because of my just uh, penchant for using so much analog gear, it makes it more difficult. Everything's a little bit, a little bit more complicated. And definitely, you know, you'll find like, uh, hey, why is it? I've had a problem with my kick drum mic not working recently. It's like I can't figure out where that is. Hmm. And, you know, you're going to different points in the signal channel. Is it the mic? And so I take the mic and plug a little pigtail into the patch bay. And it's like, no, the mic's working. Was well, it the mic panel? It's like, well, I can get the signal to the top row of the patch bay. Right. You know, what's going, what's going on here? Exactly. And in, some, in some cases, for a while, I put this console in. I had a couple of channels swapped somehow, and so that got really confusing. Like, where's my signal? And it was like one. I plugged up two of them in backwards somewhere. Yep. And, oh man, I've done all of that. Yeah. All, <laughs> analog studio. That's one of the things. If you have an analog studio, you better stay organized, and you have to <laughs> patch bay maps, write things down because you will forget. Yes. And and I, I still do that. I still forget. I'll. I'll repatch something behind one of my racks temporarily for a video. Yep. And then I'll forget that I've done that. Yep. And I didn't write it on the patch bay. And then the next time, I'm like, well, this isn't working right. So then I have to climb back behind the racks and mm -hmm. get back there. And it's kind of dark when I've got the flashlight. And I'm like, what's yep. going on? You know, I got the extra light back there, the light on my head apparatus, a little flashlight in my hand. Got the little glasses on. I'm trying to read these little writings and like two feet of cables. Like when you're first starting to patch things in, you're going, okay, I'll remember that this was plugged to here and this was there. That's very logical. And then like, you know, six months later, it's like <clears throat> piles and piles of cables because I didn't do the floating floor. And you're like, wow, no, I don't want it to go there. How am I going to find that cable? And you're underneath there trying to pull out ends of cables and find what goes where. And in the process, you've unplugged six other things <laughs> accidentally. It happens to me all the time. It it's happens just to me like, all the time. How, you know, like you want to be an engineer, you're going to spend a lot of time on your hands and knees. <laughs> right. That's underneath the thing that I'm... Here. I'm getting, I'm getting where I don't like that. My knees don't like that anymore. <laughs> yeah. And then my console is so crazy. I don't have very much space behind this. Right. And I mean, I, there's enough room. I made sure to leave enough room where I can get behind it. Yes. But the way my room is, I don't know if you can see, but there is no way to get behind this console. The only way to get behind my console is to climb underneath it. And then, and then sit up behind it. And then everything <laughs> you, but then to get back out, 
then to get back out, you've got to lay back down and scoot yourself out from under the console. And I thought, well, that wasn't the best plan. You know, maybe I should have left like four feet behind this thing instead of just a foot and a half. And I, you know, I left the space and the racks are the same way. They're about two feet off the wall because I know I'm going to have to get behind them all the time. But and if you did so the, yeah, but if you did the right acoustic thing and had it three quarters back in the room where they say things should be, then you'd have cables all over the place. That you'd and be my, tripping over. And in my studio, I wouldn't have any room to put anything else. There would yeah, be no room. Yeah. My control room area would be way too small then. I would lose so many feet. And I mean, this yep. control room area is probably, I think this across here is about 12 feet. And then from here to the next section to the next room is maybe 15. It's not huge. Wow. But lucky I have these vaulted ceilings in here. That's really yeah. nice. And actually, I get great drum sounds. And the other room, the drum room, is pretty much like this, even though it's separate. It's like it's that way in the studio behind the camera. But mm. so, and it has the same kind of ceiling set up. And that was what was impressive. This is just a garage apartment. I thought, well, I don't right. know if it's going to sound good, but I was hopeful because of the sloped ceilings. And the only issue I really have is that sometimes I like to have my overheads a little bit higher and oh. that doesn't work. But other than that, I get a great sound without without a lot of work. That's great. I don't know. I'm not one of those guys that goes around working on the acoustic stuff. I, to me, it's like some of the best records that I've ever heard in my life were recorded in less than perfect spaces. Oh, everything goes. No. And even if they say it was made and spent millions of dollars, the people who work there will tell you how imperfect it is. There right. is no such thing. So, right. yeah, we're all okay. And I always come back to the fact that it's a gigantic playing field and anything and everything goes. You know, right. and so the only thing that we have to deal with is the mind games around the folks who say you don't belong, you know, because there are professional engineers that I know who are like, well, that's not real engineering. And why didn't you do a subfloor? And you should have done such and such. And you don't need all that. And it's because they're not writers. They're not players. They're just mixers. And right. it's like, why are you mastering by yourself? And it's like, I've used professional mastering engineers. I love them, but they're expensive. And I put out way too much music. And I like mastering as well, just as an art form. So it's like, depending upon who you're talking to, you feel validated or invalidated and you have to keep that totally inside yourself because it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks right and i think that's a, a real problem in the audio industry is it's we have to snooty. yeah it's very classical it's, it's, an elitist, <laughs> it's an elitist kind of attitude is you're not you're you no know, you're not good enough but my soundcraft sapphire that's not good enough this this console is not good enough. This is not an API and it's not an Eve. So obviously it's not a professional console, right? So obviously we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> no, we don't, I don't know what I'm doing. I have a Soundcraft. It's not an Eve. I didn't, well, you know, obviously I don't have $200,000 to spend. This was a $40,000 console when it was new. And to me, it's perfectly adequate. Mm -hmm. um, do you want to make, do you want to make music or do you want a, you know, to have bragging rights, which which is really the most important. Are you trying to brag about your studio and just collect cool stuff and say, look how cool I am because I have a Neve, I have an API, and I have a, a stupid <laughs> machine. 
I'm a so cool and a Ferrari. <laughs> like, do you want to do that or do you want to make music? And yeah. you know, I find that I have a lot of less expensive equipment in my studio because mainly I can't afford the really expensive stuff. But I get great sounds out of a lot of this, and I get my sound out it's of it. Knowing what you're doing, right? I've had and, a lot of guitar students with seven thousand dollar guitars, and they sound horrible because they still don't know how to play and they don't realize it's their touch that gives them their sound. So we know the gear or even the most expensive plugin isn't going to make the day. That is true. And it's not, it's the, it's what you do with it. Yeah. And of course, certain types of gear I do like to use. I like the sound of certain things, but uh, you know, usually if it's something an expensive preamp or something like that, well, I probably have a clone of it. I don't have the real right. thing too expensive, right. but you know, instead of an API preamp, I have two Cappy VP26s. Instead of an E, I have a Golden Age. I have one of the Golden Age Neve clones. Nice. Great preamp. And I, I just don't see the need. I think there is a big problem with this elitist attitude. And I think a lot of the audio gear that people are made to covet. Yes. Because of advertisement and people, it's too expensive. Yeah. In fact, that, that's something that I haven't put in one of my YouTube videos, but I'm, I'm going to say, put this out there now while we're talking is I actually, you know, I took a break from YouTube the beginning of this year. I took about five, four or five months off and didn't make any videos. And that was yeah. partially for some personal reasons. I had some things going on that I just didn't have the time to, to do videos that were up to my standards. But there was another reason. I started to worry at some point that my videos were going to make people that are, you know, people out there that are watching my channel, it's going to make them think they need to go buy an analog console or they need to have wow. this out of the other. And I didn't, I started to feel guilty. It's like, I, I don't want to, mm -hmm. I don't want to influence people that may not be able to really afford that because they think they need it because you really don't. You can mm -hmm. make it with a laptop and a microphone. But then on the other flip side of that, as I know there are people that are interested in this older gear, and yeah. I know sometimes consoles like the one I have, sometimes people end up with those things for nothing or next to nothing because someone couldn't store it. I know. And in that case, I felt like, well, my videos are helping people. But what I don't want to do with my YouTube channel is have anybody thinking that they need this or that to be able to make a good recording. I never That's got that impression from your videos. I hope not. That's just a concern I had is I don't want to be, you know, yeah. I don't want to be influencing people to, you know, say I, in my mind, I'm like, what if I influence some somebody out there that goes and buys a console and then he doesn't have money to take care of himself for his family or something because he spent the money on. Well, that's, I mean, that's probably just, your fault. <laughs> no, it's not my fault, but. <laughs> one of those things I'm, I'm against kind of the elitist attitude and i'm thinking well i usually mo usually mostly low end stuff unless it's yeah. something i really feel like i need i just don't want to be an influence in that kind of an elitist way i don't want to make anyone feel like what their equipment is that's not good enough yeah and so when people comment i have a you know this old console uh, whatever I usually will try to be positive about it because mm -hmm. honestly anything if it works and you can record music with it it's just a tool yeah well when I was looking for a console again I was disappointed that Studio Master wasn't making analog consoles anymore because I know. 
I regretted getting rid of the, the big one, but it was five feet long and it had 32 channels. And uh, the mic the prees actually sounded good, you know? So if I had realized I didn't need all those uh, analog to digital converters that they were talking about to come back and mix on it, I could have just tracked through it at least. Right. And, uh, so when I started looking at older analog consoles, even on eBay and Reverb, you could get all kinds of things very inexpensively, but it was where are you going to put them? And then some of them, it was like, really, are you ever going to use 60 channels at once? Like, How many people are you going to get down here? That's, that's insane. And if you did mix that way, that'd be a lot of conversion back. And then somebody would point out to me, yes, but you're only 4'11". And you'll never reach the top of that console because you're not six feet. You have to be able to bend and reach the top of the console. I was like, I never thought of that because you don't see any of this gear in person. You know, most record stores and, and, and gear stores, they don't have any of this high-end or older gear in there. So, like, you got to go to a vintage King Audio, and I'm not close enough. I'm not in Nashville. I'm not in L.A. And... Uh, I just thought, what are you going to get? What are you going to get? And then some of them have the giant separate power supplies, so they were going to heat up or be noisy. And with the Studio Master, I had put it through another room and put the cable through the wall so that I didn't have to hear the hum, you know, in my recordings. So I was looking for something that wouldn't heat up, wouldn't use a ton of electricity, and wouldn't need a lot of maintenance. And that's when this used audience became apparent because it wasn't as heavy. It didn't have an external power supply. And um, used, it was, you know, a lot more reasonable to, to get. But everybody had said to me then, oh, so now are you going to get a separate desk? Are you going to change the desk out instead of having just the racks and the computer here? Are you going to put the, the console in the center of it? And when I see different setups, like even a mastering setup, sometimes I want just a mastering-looking setup. Sometimes I want the console in the center. Sometimes I want what I've got. And it's like, well, then you might as well keep everything as is because I've got the console over there in the center of two other speakers. There's a second speaker there. And I do have the uh, Logic sort of set up here. And um, in terms of thinking, even just quickly making a mix on the audience, like having everything come back, it's not like the old days. I've gotten so used to working in the box and on this little Behringer thing that it's like, I, d I don't know which way I want to do it now. And it's like, well, how did you used to do that in the old days? Oh, that was cumbersome. Oh, you only worked on one song at a time. You know, like, <laughs> it's just so funny. Do you find yourself thinking of things like that? I do, um, definitely. That's something that I think about a lot when I'm mixing. And It's very confusing, but what I'll tend to do is certain projects, if they are not really into it or it's just a demo, then I'll mix it in the box. Mm. And then I'll use the console on the stuff that, you know, like the things that are that I'm actually more involved with the projects. Mm. It, just, it just depends. And especially if I have just a like a guitarist and a vocalist and they just sing and play guitar, I'm not going to probably put that out to the console and mix it. It's just two tracks. I'll just do that in the box. Makes sense. Yeah. Right. So, but most of the time, if it's music that I care about and it's some, one of my personal projects or homespun centaur, or some of the people that I work with will mostly mix with the console mm -hmm. and my workflow, even when I'm mixing in the box, everything's right here. The, uh, 
you can't see it on the camera. I'm on a tripod here, but over here, of course, it's a Mac, but that's not a Mac mouse. But over here, <laughs> the keyboard and mouse is right here. Okay. So I just sit at the console and I'll have the screens above the console. And so even if I'm mixing in the box, the speakers, everything's the same. Oh, so, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll just mix at the console, even if it's an in the box mix, I'm still sitting at the console. And, you know, the only thing I might touch is the control room volume knob while I'm mixing. Yeah. And, and I'll then, just kind of run through a couple of channels on the console. So, how big are some of your projects? How many tracks are you actually mixing? Usually it's between 18 and 24 that yeah. I'm putting out through the console. I don't do a lot of projects with huge amounts of tracks. Mm -hmm. um, you know, most of the music that I work on is more organic type music anyway. Yeah. Occasionally I'll have something that's this more because I only have 24 outputs on my audio interfaces. Mm. So if I have more than will fit what I'll do when I'm mixing through the console, I'll combine my three Tom mics to a stereo stem. Right. It's just in Reaper. I'm just sending those three tracks out of a pair of outputs. Exactly. I don't, I don't even create a bus or anything. I just send the three tracks from the dog and I just send them to like channel three and four. Yes. And then that comes up on the console so I can do my panning in the box and then I save the track on the console that way. Nice. So I'll, I'll do that to get things down where I have it um, paired out to. <laughs> right. But I'll try, I try to leave as many of them separate. I'll only really combine things in the box yeah. if I just don't have enough outputs on the interface. So I don't have enough channel. Other than that, I want everything on a separate channel. I know. And I remember uh, being baffled that you could use one channel for stereo in Logic. Right. I was like, what? So now, having to use two channels on analog, I'm spoiled. I want the one channel. I want to be able to use as many of these for as many tracks as possible. And I have to use two for stereo. I was like, oh. <laughs> on some, there are some programs I used. Maybe it was Sonar or earlier versions of Reaper. But I used to get in trouble with that sometimes because, you know, I don't want my stuff. If it got recorded, and that's what it is. If you record it in Reaper as a stereo track, then there's no way to split it. Ooh. And then I want that stereo track to go out to the console. And so, okay, well, I have to assign that stereo track to a pair of outputs and send it through two channels on the console. Mm -hmm. So that gets a little bit weird when I have to deal with, with that kind of stuff. It, yeah. it's, a, it's just a little bit, it just requires thinking about each individual thing and how you want to do it. And it's always based on how many outputs do I have from the computer and right. how many channels do I have it hooked up on the console? So I just, every everything is different. I, I'll just approach everything and I do it as close to my normal standard workflow as I can. But the yeah. fit, I'll tweak a few things just to make it work. And every song is different. Like I keep thinking, start them the same way. Make a template or try to figure out how it's going to spill out to the console in a similar way. But not every song fits that. Like you have to kind of do it after the fact. And all that parsing of how you're going to do it is like not mixing. It's prep, you know, and I have to remember to separate those things on different days perhaps because I'm eager to mix and it's like, it's not here. It's not going to just flow out here, except for those Aphex converters that I have because now I can go, uh, I get 16 out automatically without having to do anything. Um, especially if I have them 
set up in a template, like 8 at 1, 8 at 2, 8 at all the way through to 16. Uh, it, it's going out the, um, the the 8 at cables. So it's... it's uh, and then the other thing that was confusing recently was like if I got that Behringer P16 so that everybody could have their own personal monitor to make their own mix for their headphones, how is that going to go out Ethernet cable as well as ADAC cables if the AFEX machines are out using the ADAC cables. Like, how many things can go out? It depends on how many connections. And then one of my Thunderbolt cables died. You can't even get an old Thunderbolt 1 cable on Amazon anymore. I had to go to eBay because right. there's a Thunderbolt 2 and a Thunderbolt 3. And I'm like, wow, they're making my stuff obsolete, even though I'm trying to stay like I never need anything else because there's going to be a cable that breaks that you'll never be able to replace. And that's one of the reasons why I tend to spend more money on analog gear than digital because it won't, you know, it, it's not going to, I'm not going to be forced to lose what I already paid for because of the software or an operating system upgrade, then the plugin that I bought is useless. Yeah, they won't make a driver for the new Mac or whatever, yeah. Right, yeah. and so I stick with, you know, analog gear is a better investment because it's at least worth something. It's a physical thing I can hold, and if I need the money, I can go and sell my Yuri LA-10 on Reverb, mm -hmm. which I never do because that's probably not one of my favorite compressors that I have, <laughs> but I could. It's actually worth something, whereas reselling a plug-in license, if they even allow you to do it, no. it's <laughs> it's not a lot of the digital stuff, it's just a waste of money and time sometimes. So that's why I stick with things like I stick with Reaper because it's right. not expensive and it's really stable too. Yeah. Of course, coming from the Windows world because I used Windows in my studio and I love Macs. I'm not an anti-Mac person, but the reason I used Windows for my digital audio workstation so long was purely because of the cost. Yes. Because buying Most a good people. enough Macintosh and I'm an IT guy, so my PCs, huh. they, may be, they may be like an older HP or something, but I've probably taken it out and modified it. They may have a different processor than it came with. So, you know, I did that for years, and finally now I'm on a Mac Pro because I just got really fed up with it, and I got to where, hey, I don't have the time to customize my own PCs. And then yeah. I was having problems testing out the new Windows 11, which is better looking, but it's not better for audio for sure nothing works on that and so i just said <laughs> and and plus that's my day job it's mostly and well i teach now but for 25 years my day job has been fixing it stuff mostly windows for businesses yes, done with that so, uh, oh windows is terrible it's just it's just microsoft i don't know what happened to those guys they 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 lost the plot somewhere they don't know what they're doing now <laughs> Um, Apple too, in some ways, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not as down on Apple as I am on Microsoft because Apple products generally is, at least they work right. Mm. So, but yeah, Windows is, uh, and that's too bad because even until a year or two ago, I was pretty happy running Windows for my main digital audio workstation. But I did realize even then it worked for me, but that's because I know how to work with it and I've worked on it for a living. And so right. I know how to solve those problems but for the average person if you're not a computer tech use a mac don't bother yeah. with Windows because you're going to end up having to turn off a bunch of background services there's all this tuning you have to do just to get the operating system where it doesn't have processes that get in the way of the audio oh wow 
it, it's it's uh, it can work, but it has you really have to tweak Windows to make it a really solid operating system for digital audio. And I got this Mac and hooked it up to my old interface that is they had luckily Echo had made a new driver. And I got this set up running with this Mac in a couple of hours when I put the Mac Pro in. It was like, wow. You know, and I knew that. I've used Macs for years and I knew it was going to be better, but just take it that That's step. Right. And so but finally the studio's Mac. So And seeing it and feeling it work in your own system, you know, in your own setup, it's like that's a whole different thing. You go Oh, this is solving a lot of problems. I'm so glad I did this. Right. And it really did. The Mac, uh, using Macs is just a lot more trouble-free. It costs more, but I, what I did is I bought a refurbished Mac Pro. Right. And it runs, it's not the latest OS. It runs Monterey, but that's new enough to support all my software, and it's old enough that it works with my audio interfaces. So... That's great. That's going to be where I am for the, you know, for this foreseeable future. I'll be on a Mac running Monterey. I still run Reaper as my main uh, digital audio workstation. But like you, I, I've used Logic before. I think the last time I used it was nine. It was before the new, the newest Logic 10 came out. Yeah. But I like Logic as well. I particularly like the, um, what do they call the time stretch thing? There's a name. Oh, flex, flex time. Flex time, yeah, I liked that a lot. Yeah. It actually saved a drum track that I did way back, I don't know, probably like 10 years ago at a drum track, and that saved it. That's nice. But I try not to edit a lot of things. Um, that's something I'd like to know from you, or what's your philosophy? Do you edit drum tracks and edit the stuff that you record, or do you try to stay away from that as much uh, as possible? Here and there I do. I've messed up a lot of things time-wise with stuff if I've moved things and not moved other things or whatever, but uh, I really like uh, Chris Vandeviver's channel on YouTube, Why Logic Pro Rules, and he has some fantastic videos on anything to do with time stretching or drum programming or beat mapping or like anything you have to do. There was a, a video he had once where he even purposely put in a tambourine track completely out of time. And then played it back, and it was perfect eighth notes in the tempo he wanted. And I don't always record everything to a grid, so I don't want everything to be that perfect. But it is right. nice then to be able to tell Logic, follow this guitar and make the drums follow that. Because I'll put the guitar part down first, then I'll play my drums. And um, sometimes it's just play to a, a click and then play to my drums or whatever. But I often put down a guitar thing first. And you can get everybody to play together by stripping all the tracks of whatever time stamp it had and then telling it to follow something else. And that's pretty cool because then it's got a natural feel and it's not just on a rigid click with just a little bit of a swing or humanizing factor put in. It's literally your humanizing factor. It's your performance, you know. And I guess a lot of the DAWs do that, but I, I like that feature a lot. That is that sounds like a really excellent feature. I need to check out his channel. That sounds sounds oh, like it'd be very useful. channel is superb. And and we did a chat uh, recently. That's already out and published. So yeah, he's he's a genius. Need to catch up on that too. I've been busy lately, and I have to. I need to catch up on my YouTube viewing and making yeah. videos too. So. Well, I was going to ask you uh, what kind of things have you been finding inspiring? Like I just found a new channel by uh, John Meyer 
J-O-N-M-E-Y-E-R. And he's a, a really good composer and uh, film scorer and has a nice studio set up and is making cool videos. But he's also sounds really personable and um, human. And he's been looking for artistic company too. So he agreed to jump onto one of these. We'll record that uh, in a couple of days. Um, but I think there's a lot of us especially since the pandemic, that we're all home. We were totally psyched to be forced to stay home, and now we're getting a little stir-crazy. <laughs> and I've been out in the world, but um, I've, I'm always looking for more artistic company. So that leads me to my question that I've been asking everybody. It's like, how do you stay inspired? You know, like, how do you find new things to feed you or to feel like doing any of this? I mean, sometimes you can feel like you're at a dead end and you've got everything you've ever wanted, but now you got to jump in somewhere and, and um, you finish your product project, you're exhausted, but you want to do something. And it's like, what is the next thing? You know, for me, it's always new songs, new recordings, but uh, I like, whoa. Oh, hold on, I'm trying to find my app. My phone is dinging at me. There we go. Got oh, it. it. Sorry, I tapped the thing. That's okay. Um, let, let's see. What I find inspiring is not usually the production side of it. Now, sometimes if I get a new piece of gear, you know, I do I do find really good sounds to be inspiring. I like things True. to sound good. Me too. But yeah. I think mostly, I don't know, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, Catch 22, because I would say that I am inspired when I hear other artists' music, but then there's also the danger of I don't want to be copying anyone. I don't want my music to sound like that. But lately, that's actually what's been inspiring me. I've been less inspired by gear or plugins, and I've been more inspired by listening to other artists' music, which is not not normally something that I do. That's just something that yeah, it kind of comes and goes. But lately, it's been finding inspiration from music that I enjoy, whether that's, you know, a lot of the older classic rock that I listen to. Um, I thought it was kind of inspiring the new uh, Let It Be that Dolly Parton put out with Ringo and Paul McCartney. Um, my wife was really into that. She's a big Dolly Parton fan. And I thought that was really cool. Actually, she played that for me because I think that came out just Friday and she put it on the TV in the house. And I thought, well, that's, you know, that's interesting. Yeah. It was and, Peter Frampton and Ringo and Paul. Yeah, the, the Can't go wrong. Solo, that was pretty, it was pretty good. So I did find that inspiring. Uh -huh. um, I find it inspiring. The, well, go ahead. Oh, did you see the Beatles get back that whole special? That was pretty oh, yeah. inspiring. Absolutely. That was, yeah, that was a few years ago, but that was very inspiring as well. Yeah. yeah. I do find it inspiring to read about, Something that I do, uh, and you probably do this too, but if I find like a classic album that I've never heard before, because you know, yeah. there's tons of music that was made years and years ago that oh, didn't yeah. get popular enough, and people like me never heard of it. Me too. So finding something like that that I really enjoy, and then going down the rabbit hole trying to figure out where this was recorded, who recorded it, mm -hmm. what kind of tape machine and console, how did they make this sound so good? I do the same and thing. One of those is, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Big Star, right? Uh, oh, right. Star. Yeah, that's, uh, that's one that, that's many years ago when I started listening to a lot of Big Star, I found not only the music to be very inspiring, but the production mm -hmm. of particularly the first number one record. That was 
released in 72. And at the time, I, I compared that to some other things that came out in 72. And of course, we're talking about Ardent Studios in Memphis. Mm. And there's just nothing that, that the, those albums, the Big Star albums, they sound fantastic. And so yeah. that was a rabbit hole. Like, where, what kind of, were they using a 3MM56 tape machine? I know it was a, <laughs> it was a Autotronics console with Spectrosonics components that they built it out of. In fact, wow. I've seen that console at the Stax Museum. It used to be on my screens in the background. A lot of my videos see the picture on my desktop background of that console at the Stax Museum. Wow. And there was something about not, and it's not just the equipment they use, it's the way that they would record things then. Sure. You know, not, not as many mics on the drums. Things were just done differently. But those are great sounding records. They didn't have enough tracks, yeah. <laughs> those, those things, I guess you could say that's what inspires me. When I hear something, particularly if it was made a long time ago, and it just mm. has a sound quality that I really like to. It's like these guys did something special when they were recording this, and all mm. they had was analog gear yeah. and tape. And then another thing, um, I don't know if you're familiar, I've, I mentioned them before, but one of my favorite bands in the world is Gentle Giant. Um, right. They only existed from 1970 to 1980, and it's very unusual progressive rock. Um, the earlier stuff is a little more like the 60s, um, maybe a little bit like some of the psychedelic rock, but it's much more classical and jazz influence in their music, hmm. and the records just sound amazing. That's awesome. And it, yeah, I just uh, that that band absolutely floors me, and it's not for everyone. It's one of those things. When I first started listening to them, which I came late to the game, I had no idea they, who they were until a few years ago. Hmm. And I started listening to it because of a video I saw on YouTube. Some prog rock professor guy or something talked about it, cool. and so I said, "Okay, I'll go download." And I started listening to a couple of them, and at first I was like scratching my head, and I thought, "Well, I'm like this is awful." but it's not. I said, there's something to this. And it's like, I didn't like it at first. I really didn't. I was like, I don't like this band that much. I don't know what this guy was talking about, but wow. it was thing. I just kept listening. Mm. And then I listened to some of the other albums and now I'm just floored by it. And, but the sound quality is also part of the reason is that sure. they recorded that at AdVision studio, which is where a lot of David Bowie stuff was done in the seventies. Nice quality the sound quality of that stuff is just amazing that's awesome. um yeah even the non-remastered versions so still sound good uh, there's, yeah there's a lot of weird stuff like that i like a lot of your kind of off off you know off the beaten path kind of music and of course right. be the beatles big huge I, i've been a huge fan of the beatles since i was about 12 <laughs> years old and yeah i have my friend nick baker to thank for that if he ever watches my channel yeah. Nick Baker, he introduced me to the Beatles when I was like 12. And then after he got me listening to the Beatles, then he introduced me to Led Zeppelin. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Friends, that's how I found out about music all in my younger years. It was like, you know, your cool friends would, you know, kind of yeah. turn you on to different different things. You can't really uh, go wrong channeling your inner Beatle. It's, a, it's always a very yeah. inspiring thing. <laughs> <laughs> it is, and that's always been one of my favorite bands, but that's not uncommon. I think the Beatles just has some kind of mass appeal, and it's really hard. Mm. Um, even people I know that are not big fans of the Beatles, they know the songs. They don't know that it's the Beatles. 
And this is mostly younger people I'm talking about that I know. They don't even know. I know that song. I didn't know it was the Beatles. Oh, wow. But well, to me, that's crazy. It's like, you know, my generation, everybody knows the Beatles were everything. It's where, you know, three quarters yeah. of modern music comes from the Beatles. They right. started all of this. Yeah. But now it's starting to change. You know, people know the songs more, and that's unusual too. Because I'm going, you don't know the history of the Beatles. You know, I was the guy who rented the complete Beatles VHS tape when I was in the 80s. You know, I watched the, you know, everything I could find about the Beatles. I knew all their stories, the whole story of the Beatles. Yeah. And then Led Zeppelin later too. So. Right. And I, I don't know if there's that many bands right now that people have that kind of depth of interest in to know every little thing about them as people like who who are the people behind this music the way they did the beatles and those early bands but i yeah, find like a lot of today's music like i don't always like the sound of the records you know if it's not real musicians playing real instruments and it's just too much low end or hyped high end or things that are hurting my ears it's very hard for me to get in and spend some time listening to it. You know, I like things that sound balanced and I like things that sound like really intricate arrangements and not just slamming and blowing things up and turning things inside out for the sake of like some kind of an effect. Like all those different channels that teach you how to be a better engineer, I was a member of all of them. I had subscriptions to all of them. Mix it with the masters, pure mix, uh, produce like a pro, all these different things. And I still love them and get tips from them and stuff, but it was project after project of hit song after hit song by producer by producer that I just didn't even like the tunes or I didn't like the instrumentation. I was like, I'm not going to watch this tutorial for seven hours because I don't even like the sound. I don't like the vocalist or I don't like the song doesn't go anywhere. Like I like a good composition and some intelligence and, and it's like, okay, you're starting to sound really old, you know, <laughs> but uh, I still appreciate it was the same as when I was 10. I still didn't like that sound of that kind of a bass drum when I was 10, you know, so it's not really that I'm, falling out of sync with what's happening it's just that now that i've used that technique it doesn't even fit my music you know good thing i learned that technique <laughs> it seems like people now if you want to find the the people that you know they really get involved in learning the history of the bands people now they're doing that with more of the older bands classic rock they may know the entire history of say uh -huh. you know metallica or the police but these modern bands i mean um Matchbox 20. Does it? I don't think I know anyone that knows the history of Matchbox 20 or Third Eye Blind or any of those bands, late 90s, early 2000s. They're just, right. you know, I know of them and I've heard their songs, but I don't know anything about it. I couldn't tell you the uh, any of the members' names. Exactly. They, that's the thing in, a, in films lately. They say, name one other band where you can name all the members. For a while there, it was always just people could name all the members of the Beatles. And that was it. Right. <laughs> I can name I can name a lot of bands. Um, my wife gets frustrated with me because I know so much about rock history, and she'll be playing. Oh, that's such and such was the guitar player on that. I know all, um, my head is full of what some people would might consider useless knowledge, but I think <laughs> the history of the history of rock and the history of music and how it's recorded to me is really really important. I think that music um, it means more than people really understand.
anymore. We used yeah. to. Seems like, you know, even when I was growing up, which was 70s and 80s, we understood that back then we all knew that if you wrote the right song, you could change the world. Mm. And I think maybe we've lost some of that. Now, I think there's, you know, no, it's harder to have your music be heard. So yeah. it's less realistic for anyone to actually hear anything. So your music doesn't make as much of a difference. I mean, yeah. it does, but it just it's, you know, I, I've been a musician and I started doing YouTube because, you know, I wanted a reason to have my studio. <laughs> and, you know, I needed a reason for it. I make records and release records and, you know, my friends, few people like them. I've I even had a couple of websites review my first album over in Europe. I had album reviews. There's no sales. Nobody really cared. I know. And it becomes at a certain point, it's like, well, you know, I have really no reason to do this. And so I started doing YouTube instead because I thought, well, you know, I have all this knowledge about production and especially analog gear because I had this college degree and I'm doing IT work all the time and I'm not using my college degree. I'm only using it in my spare time to work mm. in my studio. And so I just kind of moved that over to, uh, I'm just moved over to YouTube and started doing YouTube videos and thought, oh, I'll show other people. Right. And then I also thought, well, the channel, you know, some of the videos I do, they help promote some of the music that I've worked on. I've done a lot of mixes of Homespun Centaur's material. Right. And that, promote, that promotes the Heath's music, the work that we've done together. And hopefully people see those videos and a few of them say, hey, maybe I want to hear that album. And they go and download it. That's and great. Yeah. To what we did. So it's really just, I mean, I don't care about the money. Anybody doing this doesn't care about the money. I have 2,400 subscribers nearly. And my YouTube channel, I think I make like $24 a month. It's not anything to live on, but it's... <laughs> But it's fun. I enjoy making the videos. Mm -hmm. It gives me a creative outlet, gives me a reason to record a little short song for a video and actually, you know, keeps me playing my instruments and doing something in my studio instead of just having my whole life given over to the day job thing. So I know it's an interesting experiment. If you ask yourself, if you won the lottery, what would you do differently? And okay, maybe you'd travel more, or you'd buy better gear, or after a while you'd have a bigger house, or whatever the thing was. But for the most part, I'd be doing all the same things. Right. I just it's like so that that means you've already won. You know, like you're already living the life you want to lead. It's not hindering you in any way. And um, I love that you want to share what you know with people. I mean, that's why I wanted to talk to you and meet you, you know, because your YouTube channel is really fun and you are very knowledgeable with all kinds of things. And, uh, you know, I just wanted to publicly thank you for your YouTube channel and sharing your knowledge because you don't have to. Most people can be snooty and hold on to everything themselves. But I love that saying, find what you love and share it. And it's a beautiful thing that so many people share their things on, on YouTube. I mean, look how much we all have access to and can learn. Every time something goes wrong with the house or whatever, I can call an expert or I can look on YouTube and figure out how to fix it myself. And it's it's just fascinating how much knowledge is out there and that's shared. So thank you, Absolutely. Well, you're welcome. And thank you for saying so. I really appreciate that. I just like doing YouTube. I started making the videos you know, mainly to share knowledge. And I thought, 
I thought there was not enough about analog gear. All the YouTube channels I started to watch were plugins and, you know, how to yeah. align your drum tracks and, you know, things like that. Yeah. And so I saw that there was a need for that. And I thought, well, that would be a great thing to do. Um, and that positioned my channel differently because, you know, I don't, what's the point in starting another YouTube channel where I'm just doing a screen capture and a plugin? There's no point <laughs> people doing that. And so I saw an opening and I said, there's an opening. Huh. I didn't know whether I, I didn't know whether I could do it or not. That's I figured great. that I would be decent at it, but it just, it just kind of, I don't know. I just started doing it one day. I just decided, Hey, I'm going to start making YouTube videos and nice. I got started on it. So that's really cool. Yeah. I remember my uh, computer giving me problems and thinking, why am I recording to a computer? Yeah, I could just go back to a tape deck or a hard disk machine or a, and then of course you want all the editing aspects <laughs> of the computer. The cut and paste is like gold. So yeah. They're very kind of frustrating, but that's why I leave mine alone. It doesn't do updates. It's just yeah. kind of once the computer is stable, I'll leave it alone because I need it to work. Don't change. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. So that's, that's been good. Well, it's good cool hearing it from an IT expert. You know, it's like. Don't yeah, I'm a network engineer, systems engineer. I mean, most of my life is dealing with computer issues. Mm. And so I love coming in the studio and making music. I'm actually going to be incorporating a little of that in my current job since I'm teaching now. We're actually going to sure. do some experiments. I'm going to do some cross-class things with our music class and actually show the kids what different instruments look like on the screen when they're recorded so they can see the waveforms of the different instruments that they have. Oh, that's smart. That's fun. So that's going to be fun. So I kind of have shifted over, and but I'm still here in the studio, going to keep doing the the YouTube channel, I, I can't do as many videos as I used to. It's just gotten impossible for me to make the quality of content that I used to and to make as many videos. So I took a break Then I came back in June and I've been once a week, sometimes every two weeks. So I'm kind of going to every two weeks or maybe once a month format because that's that's just all I can handle right now. Yeah, I really would love to make more of them. I used to make three videos a week, but it wow. just is impossible to do that. I can't do it and keep the quality of the videos high enough. And, you know, I'd have to revert to doing screen capture stuff and find something that's easier and less time consuming. Hmm. And I'm not, I'm not willing to change the channel that much just to be able right. to put out content. Well, so. I don't think the volume of how often you're doing it is upsetting anybody. I think they just like what you do when you do it. <laughs> yeah, I really do enjoy it. That's what I tell everyone when they comment and they say, hey, we like your videos. First thing I say is I really enjoy making the videos because I do. I wouldn't do it if I didn't enjoy it. That's cool. I like the conversations that I have with people. I like helping people and answering questions. I always, that's the other thing people need to know about me is I answer every single comment if I if I can and when I have time, I answer every question. If I don't know the answer, I try to point them in the right direction. At least give them a little help because That's analog awesome. gear is confusing, and That's yeah, really I nice want more people to be into it. So yeah, I don't always get notified 
when there's a comment. I sometimes go through and find a page where I can see all the comments and I see things that are wonderful that I wished I had responded to. And then someone laughs at me and goes, thanks, but I, I said that two years ago. And it's like, well, I just found out about it today. I didn't get any notification on it. I've had that problem too. And that's just the YouTube thing, the way that it works. And it's also, you have to have time to actually go back through all those comments. And yeah. I don't know, I don't know that I always have as much time as I'd like to have to be able to keep up with things like that. So sure. I do try though. I really try. If I've not answered anybody's comment, it's not because I didn't want to. To mention two books that you might like since you like um, analog gear and such. Um, yeah. One is the Metal Alliance recording drums with Elliot Shiner and Frank Filippetti and uh, all those folks that just like, they all got together and put together this big book called Recording Drums. You can only get it from Sweetwater, but it's like okay. all the best drum miking techniques from the greats. And then the other one was written by Glenn Berger and that's called Never Say No to a Rock Star. <laughs> and there was a lot of fun things in there about uh, studying with uh, and working in studios with analog gear. So you you might get a kick out of that. Excellent. I will definitely look at those. And then I have a recommendation for you as well. Thank you. I could use some. <laughs> go, listen to, go listen to some Gentle Giant albums. I was going to. I have it written down here. Yeah. Start with, I think my favorite album overall is The Power and the Glory. Okay a different view of the studio you can actually see the ns10 one of the ns10s back there now i have ns10s and then the tenoy golds nice I used to use krks but i took those to my classroom so that i have decent oh, audio yeah. for the classroom good so uh, that's where the krks went nice i've got some ns10s up there too cool actually they sound terrible, but I actually love them because they will let you know if, if something's wrong in the mid-range, you can hear it really obviously with the NS10. Right. So, that's so great. That, yeah, that's what I used back in the day when I worked in commercial studios. Nearly every studio I worked at had a pair of NS10s. And right. I'm lucky to have the pair that I have because they are not cheap these days to get real. Like mine are NS10M Studio. Mm -hmm. and and they, I bought them from the same person I got the Soundcraft from, and I think they were four hundred and fifty dollars. Good wow. luck finding them for that now. You're, you know, they're way more than that. I have the ones that were before that. Oh no, I, mine say NS10Ms. I yeah, thought I saw a pair recently. They were like really cheap, like two hundred and fifty bucks. Somebody is it Aventone? Um, they're making the CLA monitors, yeah. CLA 10 or something. Oh, that's because funny. Know, yeah, Chris Lord Algae, he loves the NS10s. And, yeah. you know, he, he's a pretty good mixing engineer. But listen to some of the Gentle Giant stuff. That's what I was getting back to. You, I don't know if you'll like The Power and the Glory. That's my favorite record. Okay. If you get towards the later stuff, the album Giant for a Day, a lot of the diehard Gentle Giant fans don't like that record. Okay. It's much more like yacht rock. If you, you know, like Steely Dan, that kind of 70s soft rock sound, but the songs are great. The earlier stuff is much more experimental huh. and uh, not experimental like with sound effects and things. It's more just musically experimental. That's why I like 
because they're not using a lot of there's some studio tricks there's some things in their recordings i can't figure out how they would have done it with the technology at the time mm. but it's it's things a lot of organic instruments so nice. well, who really, engineered and produced it the early stuff that the the early stuff, Tony Visconti, I think, and oh, the wow. later stuff, I'd have to look. Yeah, he did the first few albums, and then he I don't know who. Yeah. <laughs> Used to be. And I don't know who did the later stuff. I know that it was all done at AdVision Studios. Yeah. So, and how I'd does this stuff? Oh, go ahead. Hmm? Oh, I, I don't. Re I know David Bowie recorded a lot there, but I don't know anything else. I haven't. I went down the rabbit hole about it, but I haven't looked into too much of the other the other stuff that was done there. Only I know that David Bowie and a lot of stuff, yeah. other people were done there. And then another. Just, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. I was going to oh, go on another question for you. Go, go ahead. Well, I might be changing the subject, so you should go back to your. Oh, that's okay. Uh, you're saying uh, and another thing here. Oh, the. Uh, the others, there's another studio that was pretty famous. I'm trying to remember the name of it, but it was the one where 10CC recorded also in, in England. It was another famous studio. Yeah. And Have you watched that, that video of the 10CC of the making of I'm Not in Love? No, I haven't. I oh, should you watch, watch that. that. Yeah, that I'm a pretty big fan of 10CC. I, I'm not in love is a good song, but I'm more a fan of. You, you, have you heard the song Hotel? Tins I'll DC check Hotel. It out. I don't know That's if I have or not. I'll go listen. It's to a it. strange one, but it's cool. It's a really, it's a really unusual song. Well, this one gets into the multi-tracking of how they did all the voices. Ah, 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 oh. ah, ah, all those kinds of things. That's really interesting. How they played the console as an instrument. So yeah. That's what I do. Most of my mix isn't here on this console. You know, I'm not using automation. I'm yeah, using... It's, it's a performance. Hands. Yeah. Yeah, that's and cool. A lot of times using, using, my, using hands, hands on the console, sometimes uh, more than one set of hands if it's a complicated mix. Sure, I remember those days. Yeah, that's, I, I just like working that way. I don't, I don't know why. I could use automation. I have it in Reaper and... I've probably done a little bit of that with things that I really needed to and just automated in the box. Hmm. But in general, it's hands-on. We're mixing on the console here. so Nice. So tell me about this Google Pixel 5. Uh, that's just a phone. I've had this phone for about three years, and I bought it because at the time I was using Windows to edit my videos. And pulling uh, videos off of an iPhone onto Windows is a little bit more complicated. It's oh. possible, but it's more time-consuming. You have to use iTunes, and it was all these different steps. Right. And the amount of time it makes takes to make my videos, I've had to find ways and techniques to use when I'm making videos that make it easier and quicker to make the videos. Of course. That's one of them. I was using Windows back then, and so I got the Google phone because it's easier to pull the videos off the phone than it was the iPhones, which I had all iPhones previously. I thought it was a um, a thing I downloaded an app for my phone and then an app for the Mac, and it lets you use the iPhone as a camera. And I recorded one of these chats this way, but then my voice was out of sync with my own picture, <laughs> even though I, I could choose it. I've, I've had the, I'm able to choose it in Zoom, but it didn't record me well when it bounced out. So I don't know what happened. 
it's strange some of the some of the um video chat apps and things are they confuse me yeah i mean i do this there at the very beginning thing. yeah I, so I think they're just they're too they're too young yet you know they don't know what to tell us how to work it yet <laughs> they'll come up but with something better the Pixel 5 is just a good camera. That's really why I bought it. I bought it because at the time it was easier to integrate it with Windows and it would speed up the production of the, the YouTube videos. Looks great. That's why I was asking. Looks great. Yeah, it has a beauty. And this is the selfie camera that we're using. When I, wow. in my normal videos, when I'm using the phone, I'm using the, the main the back, camera. The back yeah, camera. It, has two, it has the wide angle and then the regular lens on wow. this phone. And so most of my videos are shot with one of the two other lenses. And I just really like the phone. The quality of the camera is really good, and that's why I bought it. And also, if I was going to go to something besides an iPhone, I didn't want to go to a Samsung, something with a modified version of Android on it. I wanted pure Android, and mm. so I got a Google phone, so I don't have all the bloatware. It's just Android operating system on the Google phone. Oh, and can you use it with the Mac, too? Yeah. Actually, I did have to load an app on the Mac now to pull the videos off of the Android phone onto the Mac. I have to have an Android app. So now my next phone, I'm going to go back to an iPhone since I've gone to editing my videos on Mac now. Mm -hmm. So now I can go back to an iPhone. So, yeah. <laughs> but the Pixel's been great. It's been yeah. a great phone. So yeah. I've been pleased with it. That's cool. Yeah. I was uh, using uh, an Android phone to just use the TuneLab app to tune my piano. Because when I got in touch with the company, they wouldn't give me a discount because I wasn't a professional piano tuner. Ah. Here I'm offering to pay them. It's a $300 app. I'm offering to pay them something, but just give me a discount because I'm a professor and I'm an artist and a studio owner with a piano and I want to tune it myself. They're like, no, sorry, you're not a piano tuner, so we're not going to give you a discount. So you know what they told me to do? Buy a $40 or $60 Android phone. I don't remember how much it cost. It was pretty cheap. And download the app for free. And that so works, So that's what huh? I did. And it works. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I have to take a little 15-minute break because it's on uh, demo mode. But it's like, but I can play piano then and practice <laughs> and wait for it and then go back and tune it again. And it's just so funny to me that they wouldn't take some money from me, but they told me to download the free thing. I was like... What? That's amazing. Okay, thanks for the tip. So sometimes, sometimes these companies don't make a lot of sense. The software companies don't. That's it's, what I'm it's saying. Really, <laughs> it's, really, it's really kind of odd the way they do things. I use the Peterson Strobe Tuner app, yep. and that works on iPhone and Android. For but piano? I don't have a piano. No, I don't have a piano to tune. It's yeah. guitars, basses, and things. The only piano-like instrument I have around here is a Casio keyboard. I don't have yeah. any. I used to have a Kawhi Baby Grand electric piano. This is a Peterson um, Strobe for guitar and bass. Yeah. And that's nice. Yeah. That's, that works really well. Yeah, I just have the app version of that. Cool. But it, it does work really, really well. That's I awesome. wish I had some guitars to show you, but actually all the guitars are not in the studio because of the excessive heat. Absolutely. And so instruments are in the house right now, and I don't have anything. Otherwise, I'd bring out a guitar. I have a really cool Maiden MS2000 Deluxe, which is an Australian-made guitar. Wow. That's the only exotic guitar I still own. I've sold a lot of a lot of my other instruments have kind of come and gone. 
and I just have a small arsenal of the things that I tend to use the most. And yeah, you know, I'm the guy that used to have a collection of, I think, I think at the peak I had maybe 23 or 24 guitars. I get and it. now I, I think it's three or four and a bass is really yeah, all it's I've like got. Keep the workhorses, right? Absolutely. That's what I, I do. Keep the workhorses. and I had a whole and bunch too, and I thought, I want more recording gear instead. So I sold a bunch too. That's what I've done is I used to have more guitars and now it's, you know, more preamps and more outboard gear. <laughs> yeah. But but I have stopped doing as much of my own music anymore. You know, I generally am more producing other people hmm. and you know, that's not my day job, but I do still, uh, I do still record demos and, you know, I haven't done an album. The last album that I actually worked on came out in 2021, and I haven't done anything since then, which is really weird because for years it was like I had a day job, then I'd have sessions on evenings, weekends, YouTube videos, and just kind of all of that. Hmm. But um, after the pandemic, we just finished the last Homespun Centaurs album, the and that's the last one that I've that I've done. I did master the remix album, which was I think the next year they did a oh, remix. Cool. Album. I just did the mastering on that. But I haven't done anything. It's kind of you know the last couple of years has been as far as anything I've actually done here in the studio that's been released. There really hasn't been much of it. Hmm. Yeah, that's different for me because I've spent the last you know twenty years. Even when I was working, I'd have some kind of recording project going on at all times, and all of a sudden here the last few years I haven't had that going on. I know change so, even takes us by surprise within ourselves. It's like what. I'm not doing what? I don't want to do what? I'm not interested in what? You know, it's like, that's different. It's Who are you? Very, yeah, it's very interesting. I love to do it. I just haven't had the same kind of time that I did. And what okay, time I yeah. did have, I've tried to do YouTube videos because that's, you know, where people are actually watching what I do. People are paying attention to what I do on YouTube. So I think I'm more important now as more of an educator on my YouTube channel and in my day job since I became a teacher recently. So I'm, I see myself more as that. And even when I was a musician, I'm more of an artist instead of a musician. As I've said, I'm not the best musician in the world. Um, I mean, I may be better than I think I am, but uh, that's not... You know, I know a bunch of people that can play the instruments better than I can, but I understand how things sound. Yeah. And I crave. And how they translate. Yeah, how to make how it to, translate. How to get that sound from that player to translate to actually be a record. Right. And you want it to be larger than life. That's a big reason why using the analog gear, it adds that saturation and that largeness to the sound that actually takes something that sounds like. You know, sounds like somebody recorded it in a little room and all of a sudden now it's now it's like, you know, something big. It's larger than life. And that's what I look for in records. And when I try to make things, I want them to have a really big sound. I want it to make an impression and to immerse you in the sound field when you hear the mix. What are some of your recording or mixing techniques to do that? Just mainly using the console and then a lot of panning. You know, getting the panning right to, and I'll typically pan things, certain things, I'll pan them a lot wider than you might think I would, or that you might normally do that just because I want that width and that, but not everything. 
that's the problem. If you pan everything really wide, then you lose you lose the the width because you've got everything panned. So you have to choose specific things. So it's all panning. Sometimes it's EQ. It can be delay and reverb. It it just kind of depends. The way I work is just, I'm just intuitively listening to what I hear. And then, okay, well, maybe a little bit of reverb. I can push that a little further back that way and try that. Okay, that didn't really work. Maybe I need to do that a different way. Mm-hmm. And it's just a lot of experimentation is really how I work. Just using my ears, experimenting. I do have a lot of tips and tricks. You know, some of them I've used in videos, but I also don't think that those are necessary all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the real trick is these days is not going on YouTube and using every trick you see on YouTube in the book on your mix. Because just because you saw that trick on YouTube, like, do you actually need to use that trick on this track? It's kind yeah. of making the decision on that. That's where a lot of my thought processes come is like I'm thinking I know of a way to kind of improve what I'm hearing. But do I really want to do it that way? Yeah. And you have to balance those things and those tips and tricks out. You need the wisdom um, my, to know when. Right. And my favorite way to deal with drums, um, instead of sample replacement, which a lot of people do, I like the old Mutt Lang trick, taking like a snare track, duplicate it, pitch the one of the two snare tracks down, and then mm. blend it with the other one to give it more weight. The trick to that is you need to gate it, because if you pitch down the snare track and you've got any hi-hat bleeding and you don't have it gated, so I'll gate that duplicated snare so that I cut all the hi-hat bleed out of it, just have that fundamental snare drum tone, and then I'll use a pitch shifter and pitch shift it down just enough and just use my ear. Where is that pitch shifted snare going to mesh with the original snare track to give it more weight in the mix? That's, that's just one tip. There's a lot of stuff like that, and a lot of it is recording how you record something, you know? Cool. Super cool. And the, yeah. and the instruments, drum sounds, it's all about the drum kit. I have a 67 Ludwig kit. I get good drum sounds. Why do I get good drum sounds? It's because the drums sound good. They're just good Absolutely. sounds. Drums. So yeah. it makes it easier. The sound starts at the source. Definitely. And you can't put a Band-Aid on everything. No. And I want to um, experiment. I haven't ever recorded my drums without the bottom heads. I want to do some of that, like on Revolver. And then I want to get some calf heads for the top oh, yeah. of some of them and try some of that because I haven't done that. I usually do the tea towels, like some bandanas and things like that, but uh, I'm going to experiment. Try that, try that with a vintage Tascam preamp. I did that with the M35. I put some towels on the on the drums and then recorded them with the old Tascam preamps. Yeah. Awesome. Those yeah. Tascam preamps have this kind of dryness to the sound. Yeah. They you can do. actually take a, take a non-dampened drum and put it through those preamps, and it has more of that sound. I don't know That's what amazing. those things do. They're, yeah, um, they're actually really impressive. They're, I was I really know. impressed with that. That's cool. I don't have that mixer anymore, but that, that, uh, I remember them sounding pretty darn good. Yeah. I've still got one sitting over here. Uh, sitting, leaning against the couch over across the room from me right now. I still hear. Uh, I, like I have the colors a, on it. Some nice colors. Yeah. <laughs> it's like orange and green and blue knobs and stuff. It's very seventies looking. But the, the I, Studio I, Master I like Track Mix had the best colors. I, I miss that a lot. 
that one just really looked good. I love those. The Studio Masters were great consoles. You know, we had those in our lab in college. We had the uh, Mixed Down Classics, the Studio Master Mixed Down Classics. And we had, like, I think some ADATs and some Behringer compressors. And that was interesting. I had an ADAT master tape of a band I recorded here in East Texas before I moved to Arizona to college. And we went to mix it in college. I took the master with me. And nice. one of my friends flew out to Arizona. We went in the school lab and we mixed it on the studio master in the school lab. And then we got into one of the bigger studios. We actually mixed it on an AMEC console in Studio B at the, wow. at the school. And when I got back to East Texas, guess which mix we actually used? It was the Studio Master mix from the lab. That actually wow. sounded better. That sounded than the that. best. Yeah, That's it did. I don't know. I don't know why. Maybe just my ears weren't in tune, but the mixes from the lab with the Studio Masters won over the AMEC mixes from the big. I mean, that's just kind of how it is. It doesn't matter what you use because it may yeah, still sound really good. Like it. Yeah. Well, this has been so awesome, Grady. I can't thank you enough. This was cool. Absolutely, I think so too. I really appreciate you inviting me to do this. This is really only the second time I've done any kind of a collaboration video. And uh, it was just great. I really appreciate it. And, of course, if you ever want to do it again, let me know. We'll jump on the chat and talk about maybe we pick a different topic ahead of time the next time. And I have some notes, have a more a more in-depth discussion. Specific thing. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds great. Well, thank right. you so much. And, Absolutely. Uh, thank you. Take care and, and enjoy teaching. And um, I'm going to look up some of these things and go have some fun listening. Yeah, go listen to Gentle Giant. Listen to yeah. The Power and the Glory. Um, what's the other one? Freehand. Those are probably their two most well-known. Those are very okay. good records. Very interesting records. And check out uh, The Drum Book from Metal Alliance and uh, Glenn Berger's You Never Say No to a Rockstar. And the 10cc video on uh, how they did the vocals for uh, I'm Not in Love. That was pretty awesome. I'm going to watch that today. Yeah. You'll flip. Yeah. Every time I watch it, I go, oh, that's so cool. <laughs> and it's used wait. very effectively in a film. There's a film called 52577 that I just watched. It's one of my favorite films now. And uh, that's by uh, Patrick Reed Johnson. And it was about the day that Star Wars was released. So if you oh. watch that on Apple TV, 52577, okay. that is a really fun story about an artistic person wanting to make films. Those, that sounds some, like some great suggestions. Those are great <laughs> suggestions. <laughs> I love all those kinds of films of people who are different, don't fit in anywhere, nobody understands them, and they triumph because they stick to what they love. So that's Yeah, that, that's me. That's me. And I'm glad to have finally found a place on YouTube where people actually you know, they kind of listen to what I'm saying and people actually enjoy the videos. I never yeah. thought in a million years I would get any subscribers on YouTube. I just said, I'm going to try it and see what happens. And it's actually, you know, it's been phenomenal. I've enjoyed meeting the people. It's one of the most fun things that I've ever, it's one of the most enjoyable things I've ever done in my life at this point. So It's a cool interactive thing, definitely. It really is. It really is. It's absolutely wonderful. I'm, I'm so glad that YouTube is great and that we got to meet each other because of YouTube. There it's a great go. thing. Because of YouTube. So take good care and thanks you so too. much. Thank you.
See you soon, Grady. All right. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, Grady. That was fun. Find what you love and share it. That's what they say, and a lot of us do. So don't be discouraged. If you meet some elitist folks who don't want you in the club, or you feel like they're keeping you out and not teaching you what you need to know, there's always somebody else. And there's tons of information on YouTube. God, I love YouTube. I learned so much about everything on YouTube. So thank you to all the creators and all the generous folks that are out there, and all the experts that give us tips and tricks and methods for helping our lives. You can get in touch with Grady if you need some consulting on your setups. Twin Creek Audio, the website, and the YouTube channel. Check out his videos. Check out his teaching. See what you can learn. Make your life better. Get stronger at the things you love. And enjoy being you. You can visit my YouTube channel. You can watch videos of us there or on my website, laurenpassarelli.com. Check out the guitar charts on my website. Join my mailing list. Subscribe on YouTube. I also have a blog on my webpage. Lots of articles about creativity. And my YouTube channel has tons of videos on creativity as well, especially if you're a guitar player songwriter. Enjoy. Go to your studio and make stuff. <laughs>